On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Rob English in Eugene, Oregon. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. I record that conversation and I share it with all of you so that we can all get to know each other and learn from each other. This week, my guest is Rob English in Eugene, Oregon. So he worked at Bike Friday for a number of years. I want to say six years. And uh, Bike Friday is known for their folding bikes, of course. And he, uh, he got to work in a bunch of different departments there, and he got to do some process improvements. And so it's cool to hear about that experience. But then he was doing his own frame building. And, uh, and anyway, he eventually left to go full-time with English Cycles. And he's been doing that, I think, full-time for a decade, he said, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, let's roll the tape here. I knew I, from an early age, I knew that I wanted to work for myself. And I knew I wanted to do something with bicycles. So retrospectively, it seems obvious that I'd end up <laughs> building frames, but it was never a clear, clearly defined idea. So uh, I was really lucky in high school that, guess what, I don't know what it's called in, in, in the States, in shop class or whatever, but it was called design and technology in England. So I had access to a machine shop and we could get after hours access to there. And so I discovered mountain biking as a teenager and that was the 90s when all the funky anodized components and machine this and that and the other, which, of mm. course, none of which I could afford, but I could make stuff. So made a titanium seat post and skewers and brakes and, you know, just hours and hours over manual, <laughs> manual lathes and milling machine. And uh, built my first bike as a high school project, which was uh, a long wheelbase recumbent. Um, which was, it was pretty terrible, but you know, <laughs> you learn, learn a lot through doing mm-hmm. and, uh, and still kind of focus on bike stuff. I wanted to study mechanical engineering. So went off and did that at university, which was, yeah, I got to go to Cambridge, which was great, but the downside was it was a very theoretical course. It wasn't much practical. Um, and I missed getting in the shop. But, uh, yeah, I carried on bike racing and messing around with stuff through that. Um, and then after I graduated, I just took a, a job locally that, that came up, but was keeping my ear to the ground and came across a recumbent startup company in Massachusetts. And I'd been racing recumbents for a few years with a team in the UK. And um, so... In my my usual sort of fashion, they wanted me to go out for interviews, so I flew into Boston with my bike and rode 150 miles through a rainstorm to <laughs> get to <laughs> West, West, Western Mass for this interview. Wow. Um, it was kind of cool because they were marketing people who'd seen a recumbent bike and thought this was this was a new thing and they could market it and they needed they needed a bike person and so like it was a good fit. So they she managed to get me a visa and I went there and we were uh, bringing in a line of Dutch bikes and selling them and then working on our own designs and things too. So I got to do a lot of research into geometry and 
understanding of bike engineering and and got to visit uh mine's going blank yeah the old twin factory the paramount factory in um, waterford yeah waterford and got to go visit the when sapper were building bikes up in portland and things so it was a it was amazing experience in terms of learning about business and learning about bikes unfortunately the uh overall strategy for the company wasn't I think if they just let it grow slowly, it would have been would have gone fine. But they tried to go for this big push of big growth and blew through the money, and <laughs> it was it was all over. Yeah. So uh, so at that point, I while I was in the states, I purchased a bike Friday, which was at that point the only bike in my life I'd ever just paid full retail for because it was like, the first time in life I'd actually had a a disposable income and was in the right country to buy an American-made bicycle. Um, <laughs> and because <laughs> I'd, seen, I'd seen one in, in a magazine years before, I thought, that's a great idea, because traveling with a bike is terrible. Yeah. And having a bike goes in the case. And, and I ended up go, going around the world with that a couple of times. Because I, I think of that next four or five years as my, my, like my bike bum phase, because I basically avoided winter for four years. So I'd be in the UK and race my bike and do a bit of part-time work. And then I'd go south every winter. Um, so I wintered in Spain and in Australia and New Zealand. And during this time, I kind of kept in contact with Bike Friday. I sent some feedback about the bike. I said, oh, here's my resume. It started a conversation with them that took five years for us both to be in the right place and then to get the visa for me to actually have a job. So then in... 2006, I moved to Oregon. Wow. In that in-between time, part of my uh, knocking around phase, I the recumbent team I had been riding with, King Cycle in the UK, um, I worked with them on building a, a, um, a record-setting bicycle, um, so a fully enclosed, um, streamlined recumbent. And so I got to, and we built, we built the whole thing, and it was, you know, a, a carbon fiber shell with a, um, it, you know, with a monocoque tub. So had to build. We we did all the carbon work, and uh, then we built the drivetrain, and it had a, it was pretty cool. Actually, it had a um, a sliding cassette, so the chain line stayed stayed straight, and the cassette moved underneath it. Oh, oh. Um, yeah, so that's pretty neat. And I had to you know, figure out how to do that and build a shifter for it and then try and package everything into this tiny little space and then learn to ride the thing. Um, so I was a, very, very grateful to um, those guys for involving me in that pro- in that project. That's um, funny. You just mentioned offhand, like, the, the cassette, you know, shifts so that your chain line stays straight. But, like, I had never uh, considered or seen or heard of that before. And now the gears are the literal gears are turning in my head, but like, I just, I'm so distracted <laughs> about the, th- that's such an interesting like way to go about that. And whether you had, it was on, cause it, on a recumbent, sometimes you have like sort of an intermediate shaft for your drivetrain. So you're, exactly, you're, that's, you have that's a, what this had. Yeah. Yeah. You have like a pedaling axis, like your bottom bracket, and then you have an intermediate shaft with a cassette. And then that has another chain that drives what your front wheel, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. And so on that intermediate yeah. shaft, there'd be a, a spline or something where the cassette could slide back and forth. Is that how that works? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, so actually, what we had was 
the shaft had a slot in it with like indexed notches. Uh-huh. Um, then the cassette slid over and two pins went through, located in those notches, so it was self-indexing. And then there were push-pull um, cables to, wow. you know, pull it, pull it left or right. It worked great. That is so cool. Um, and then you had a derailleur just sort of like to take up the chain, chain. Uh... Exactly. Yeah, just a te- just a tensioner. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is so cool. <laughs> okay, so sorry, um, I, I totally it's, derailed your. It's, well, just, <laughs> yeah, but what I'm hoping to revisit that idea because something we talked about at the time was like, oh, this would be really cool on a time trial bike because you could have it so your chain line was right up against the disc wheel. And as you get into your higher gear, the cassette disappears in, inside the disc. That would be cool as hell. Wow. So I'm hoping to actually, I'm hoping to actually visit, revisit that. I've got some ideas, yeah. um, but I got one. I got one of the Archer um, wireless electronic shifting gizmos, mm-hmm. um, which I'm hoping to use to activate it. Um, so yeah, at some point when I've got time, that's like the a little project in the back of my mind that's the uh the eternal <clears throat> mirage right it's like when i've got time <laughs> <laughs> so yeah anyway, what, uh, what, nor- what normally happens for me is when a bike show comes around it gives me an, mm, a reason and an excuse yeah. to actually put some of these things into action yeah no that's that's for sure it's it's good to have some sort of deadline or some sort of um thing to break you out of your normal routine and, and help you finish these projects or reallocate your time differently than, you know, normally. Right. Yeah. Cause it's, I've had enough time even just like maintaining my own bikes, let alone building myself something most of the time. Cause there's always customer work to do. Yep. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, bike Friday brought me over. I landed in this strange foreign country. <laughs> <laughs> in 2006 um and um at that point uh like friday were working to develop a a quick folder like uh something in for the same kind of usage as a brompton um but yeah bromptons to my mind have been very successful but to my mind they're uh uh, a folding bike rather than a bike that folds. Um, and that's when I think about bike Fridays, they're like always about being a really great riding bike that happens to fold. Um, yeah. which means that they come in multiple sizes. They actually fit properly. And, um, yeah. So, so I was working with one of the founders of bike Friday on, on prototyping, this new bike and once we got the prototype figured out we then had to build the production line for it um and then i started running the production um and then i took over running the other line as well so but the peak of of things um i had two lines with i think 11 or 12 people and we were doing 16 bikes a day wow um and uh and that was, yeah, get to learn a lot. And I, I trained myself into most, most of the positions in the line, um, which is you learn so quick when you're just handling stuff that much. Um, 
and particularly coming into a country that uses old-fashioned units. <laughs> I, had to, <laughs> I, I had to learn learn a new language of, of uh, you know, when the first time someone said to me, oh, just grab a piece of, piece of inch and a quarter, 035, I'm like, what, wait, what? Uh-huh. What language are you talking? It's um, terrible. But... <laughs> I, I hate it. I feel like in the United States especially, we're stuck. We're, you're just stuck between inch and metric because especially in the bike world, most everything is metric and that's like I design tools and like, of course, all my customers just want it to be metric. Very, I don't know if any one of my customers would ever complain to me that things are in metric and not inches, but I can't get material supplied or end mills or all these things. And same thing with the tubing that we get for bikes. And uh, it's just, you're, you're always stuck in between. And I feel like you just, you owe it to the world to just get rid of inches but then it's hard also because <laughs> if you grow up here you're um i think the fractional inch thing is a mess but decimal inch is like it's fairly civilized actually when you're used to it and if that's what you were taught when you were young when you were in machine shop you know in high school or something trade school it's really hard to kick it after you get familiar with it because to, to learn a whole new system is you know like you're saying it's not easy yeah um, that would be nice. Um, but yeah, so I, was, I was fortunate in having this rapid schooling of having my hands on the, on the materials every day. So and that, that got me to the point where I can pick up a tube and tell you the wall thickness pretty much because get, get the feel for it. Um, so uh, yeah, one of the cool things about, or two cool things about doing a bike Friday, one was that they were doing their damnedest to, to use lean manufacturing and Toyota production system methodology, um, which is, you know, I'd, I'd done some study of that at college and it was nice to put it into effect. And it's really challenging with a custom product. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's a good challenge to have. Um, and so, yeah, and just working on improving the process is such a fun game to me of when I'm, when I put myself in the production line, I'm you know, just running a stopwatch all the time and trying to improve the, the process every time. And by adding tooling and improving the process, I got it down. I could, I could completely cut a bike in and cut it down to about 14 minutes. Um, that's all the, all the miters, everything prepped, all the pre-brazing done. Um, it's just, it ended up being, ended up being a dance because you've got about four different machines, got auto feeds and everything. So you slowed everything up and set them going (laughs) and you're just dancing around. As soon as one thing finishes, you load the next thing in. (laughs) Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, and then the other cool thing about bike Friday was they have an open shop policy. So once you're, you know, agreed that you're safe to use the shop you can get in after hours and so i had a bike factory at my at my fingertips um yeah which after years of after years of not having a proper workshop was like ooh, toys um so um i was racing at a reasonably high level at that point um and been a time trialist for, for a very long time because that's such a big thing in the uk um, and I've, I've got very long arms, so trying to get 
a good time trial position on a stock bike was always challenging. Um, so I wanted to build myself a TT bike. Uh, and so I built this bike with the, the handlebars in, integrated into the fork so I could get them low enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, built that and went out and won the state championships on it. I was like, oh, okay, maybe... Maybe I can build a better mousetrap, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that was the, the first bike that ever got an English decal on it and still got it. And I won, I don't know, about between individual and team time trials, probably 10 or 12 championships on that thing. Wow. Um, and so it's been pretty cool, like, having this steel bike that's, as whatever all the modern bikes come along, it's like, well, it doesn't actually matter. You just get yourself in a good position and it uh-huh. doesn't really, really matter. So it's been, that's how, that's how it kind of kicked off was I, I built that just for me. And then I thought, I can't, maybe I'll try building a, a road frame. And then uh, a friend asked, oh, can you build me a frame? So oh, yeah, I could do that. Um, so still no intention to have a business at this point. Um, and in the meantime, I'd, uh, got married and finally had a, a house with a, a big garage and it's like, Oh, I can get my own tools now. So I bought, I bought my lathe even before I had any intention of having a business just cause I always wanted a lathe. Yeah. Um, uh, and got, got that and got basically the biggest single phase machine I could get and plugged it into the, uh, dryer outlet and <laughs> off you go. Um, and um, yeah so then a few frames later and I think got picked up on the weight we need for them or or somewhere and started to get some inquiries and uh, my wife has training as an attorney so she's like okay you need to go register as an LLC and you need some insurance okay (laughs) figure that stuff out um, very glad to have that advice because there's not things that would have occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was in this really fortunate position that there wasn't any pressure for it to become, uh, you know, a supportive business. It could be a hobby. I still had a full-time job and I could just, it just grew organically. Um, and I was in this fortunate position with, like Friday, where I was able to go to them and say, okay, I'd, I'd like to go to four days a week now. And a bit later, okay, I'd like to go to three days a week now. And then eventually gave my notice. And I, gave, I think I gave them like three months notice so I could make sure there was a really clean handover so, so I wouldn't disrupt what they were doing. Um, but yeah, but that was really nice that I could just let the business grow in its own way and see, see what it turned into. Um, and that day I handed my notice in, I walked out of that meeting shaking. So it was like, you know, it's the security of a paycheck and health insurance and all that stuff. Um, but, but the next day I was so happy because it's like, oh man, I get, I get to just do my stuff now. Um, and I, I think I did okay managing people and, and, and those things, but I, it's not where my happy place is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm. Have since discovered I'm 
yeah, a little bit on the, the spectrum in terms of Asperger's traits and stuff. And uh, yeah, definitely working by myself is a good fit for that. Um, so uh, yeah. And so how long have you been full time in your own shop? Uh, the timing worked out really well, actually. So I'd handed in my notice at the start of 2012 or 13. I forget, but it was a couple of months later is when I won best in show at NABS. Oh, wow. Um, so it was like, okay, this is great. I've just, like, <laughs> just decided I'm going to do this completely. And, and that was a real good affirmation. Um, to do that so so you're it's about nearly 10 years now at this point uh and also which congratulations but also um i was gonna say uh something i've asked guests about before is this idea of you know do the awards at nabs sell bikes because that was something i had heard once somebody said yeah well you know like we all have our complaints about the way things are judged or this or that but you know you can't can't fault people for trying because those awards sell bikes and i'm always curious as to whether or not people actually agree with that sentiment uh hard to say i think um i think the the media exposure from just being at nabs is huge um and then you get a bit more if you if you win awards mm-hmm. um and when I, when I won best road bike in was that 13 or 16, or I forget, 16 maybe, um, I definitely built a lot of very similar bikes to that afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, you know, I've, my waiting list has been sitting around 18 months for about the last eight years. Wow. So it, it's hard to tell if it gets a real bump at any point because it's been reasonably constant um so uh yeah no the awards are a funny thing like part of me feels like i shouldn't even enter for any of them because i kind of disagree with the basis that you can say one thing is better than something else (laughs) um (laughs) because they're unique custom things yeah they're the best thing for that customer yeah um but but yeah then it's nice to be awarded something so <laughs> yeah um yeah kind of a double-edged sword on that one yeah for sure it's uh it's it's cool to try and honor you know the the excellence and to celebrate you know the different kinds of you know yeah excellence and extraordinary workmanship and all that stuff but yeah it's kind of funny to actually like uh, qualify it that like no we think this one is the best <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, I don't know. It just seems ripe for people getting frustrated or whatever about it. So, I yeah, know. I mean, I kind of like the uh, the Concours de Machines in France format, where there's natural brief of what what problems you're trying to solve, and then you have to show up and put the bike through its paces. Oh um, yeah, and that 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 looks really fun. Like if that was closer that would be a real fun thing to, to do. Um, but, um, yeah, cause no one rides the bikes in that. They're just looking at them as objects. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, um, it's a, it's kind of a funny thing to be judging it, not having thrown a leg over it. There's a, I think there's a pretty famous, um, the musician Frank Zappa said, uh, talking about music is like dancing about architecture, I think was the quote. <laughs> But uh, it, remind, it reminds me of that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, you know, you, you can look at a TIG weld and be impressed. So, I mean, it makes sense on that level. But, but you're not cutting it open and making sure it's got full penetration. Exactly. And, yeah, they're different things. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the, the freeze patterns sure look nice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, what's next? Uh, well, we touched on on the recumbent stuff a little bit, and um, I think I have this very different background to a lot of builders, that I came from building recumbents and building folding bikes. Uh-huh. And so I didn't have any preordained ideas about how to build a bicycle or what a bicycle should be. Um, rather, I, you know, I've got a degree in mechanical engineering so I can do structural analysis on it and I've got this experience of doing this weird stuff. Um, and so I think maybe that's why my stuff looks can look a bit different. Yeah. Um, it's kind of more open, open mind. Um, I have to give a nod to uh, Eric Esland of, of Winter Bicycles. Um, so he was, he came through Bike Friday too. So he was my brazer when I was running production. Um, and uh, at one point he put up some figure for the, how many miles of brazing rod he'd, he'd used over <laughs> over the years there. So it's pretty funny. Um, but he started building winter bikes at Bike Friday as well and um we were already doing uh some bikes with three eight seat stays on on what we called the petite model um and then eric built this track frame he called the whip that used undersized tubing for every every tube in the frame and he had a he did a three eight seat seat stays with a wishbone and i was like huh not sure about making the down tube that skinny, but the seat stays. And I went away and thought about the actual loading on the seat stays. And I'd done a bike Friday that basically just had to cantilever with chain stays and with no seat stays, and that worked fine. Um, it's like, oh, interesting. So they're actually, once your chain stays are triangulated across the rear hub axle, and the, the seat stays are just a prop. They're not doing very much. The loading is really small. Um, and I've yet to I've yet to build a seat stay too small. <laughs> oh yeah. At some point I've got to, at some point I've got to find the the minimum points. So I'm down uh -huh. to on my personal bike. I'm down to uh, oh what five sixteenths twenty thousandths wall. Wow. Um, and it's totally fine. That's so, super. That's super interesting yeah. to to you know have pushed it that far too. Because uh, on some of the bikes that I built, you know, I'll use five eighths diameter or something for seat stays, and I I know full well it's more than I need. 
And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's easier to wrap a TIG weld around this part or proportionally it's more toward my aesthetic sensibilities or something. But I know that I don't really, uh, you know, I don't know that it needs to be nearly that heavy or, you know, that large of a diameter. And certainly that would make it uh, a lot less compliant. And anyway, uh, but it's cool, you know, that, that sort of discovery and uh, exploration into, you know, how far can you take something in a, in a different direction like that. Yeah, it was cool. Actually, there was in the Tour de France last year, one of the riders crashed and broke their seat stay and then got on the same bike and finished the stage. And there was an interview with the Cervelo engineers later. And they're like, yeah, we only have seat stays because the UCI say we have to. <laughs> That's because <funny. laughs> particularly with carbon, you can, you know, make that cantilevered structure plenty strong enough um, yeah. of the chain stays. You don't, you don't need it. So um, it's like, oh, right. Yeah. It's, um, so then it's just a lot of talking to my customers is um, giving them some actual edu education because there's so much awful misinformation put out by marketing and bike testers and <laughs> magazines and things. Mm -hmm. um, particularly around compliance, it's like, oh, this bike has compliance built in. It's like, well, let's think about this. This is a, a triangle is by definition a rigid structure. So do the, what deflection data have they presented to support their claim of this triangle having compliance in it? Because um, <laughs> it's, it's not true. Like, um, you, know, you, can, you can get compliance from a, a long seat post that's cantilevered out, out of the frame. That's how I tune in comfort at the saddle. But if people are telling you they're getting something from the rear triangle and they haven't got data to support it, then I'm skeptical. Yeah. I'd say that's uh, warranted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty skeptical of any kind of, um, yeah, like anything that you, you wouldn't be able to measure it very easily. I just think we're so prone to, um, you know, placebo or something, you know, like we, we suspect that we would experience a difference. And so, you know, we're going to see it, but I, I don't know. I, I'm very skeptical of claims that people make about, you know, they, they made a change and it made some huge difference and it's just pretty easy to fool yourself. You know, like, I don't know that I trust someone else as like as scientific as they think they are based on the feel of it. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if you've read any of, Josh Portner's stuff, but when he was at Zip, um, they did the best they could to do blind testing with the professional athletes. Oh yeah. Um, so they rattle can the frames, then stretch fabric over the top tube, so they couldn't see what they were riding. Um, and the only two things the pros could actually detect a difference in was uh, tire pressure and seat post type. <laughs> they couldn't tell if they were on a, a climbing frame or an aero frame or deep section wheels or shallow wheels or just like, but we're preordained if we're told, oh, if you ride this, this wheels, it's going to feel more compliant. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, it does. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to, to the subjectivity is not trustworthy. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, but that's kind of the fun one of the you know, nice parts of the process is actually being able to have a conversation with my customers. It's like, okay, 
like, so I want a really stiff bike. Okay, let's talk about what stiffness is and what that means and in actual physics terms and where you might want stiffness in this bike frame and where you might not and how we're going to define that. And it's, yeah, it's nice to be able to take everything I've learned and explain it to people so it makes sense to them. Yeah, um, well, and that's more of that, um, you know, are you selling someone just literally a product or are you selling them sort of an experience? And, you know, it's important to know what you're doing, but probably if you, you know, if you do it right, that's probably a pretty interesting and enjoyable process for your customers to, to like get to learn something about the bike and to be able to make not only decisions, but then well-educated decisions. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, and like when I first started building for myself and a couple of friends, I built bikes and then got the friends back, cut the down tube out, put a different down tube in, and then we went out and rode them again so we could learn what these, what these changes made, like on the same roads over a longer period of time. So through that data gathering, like I, I now feel like I have a good sense of the the right amount of torsional stiffness for a frame for a given size of rider mm -hmm. um, so that it's going to track nicely when you're pushing hard downhill because um, if it's if it's too stiff because our roads aren't perfect surfaces then the wheels can start to to skip and and, and bounce um, it's one to have that little bit of flex in the planes of the wheels so that the wheels can find the best traction and, and carve around the corner, but you go too little and it starts to get feel vague and soft when you're going into the corner. So it's, yeah, it's just that tuning. And that's the beauty of being able to choose every tube, both the diameter and the wall thickness and the shape and be able to like, you know, at this point, I've learned pretty well how to tune the ride through the conversation with the rider to understand what they want. Um, so tell me this. I, I know you use some shaped tubing, uh, specifically, you know, like a teardrop or whatever you want to call it for the down tube, a not round tube. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you learned about, you know, the differences between round tubing and shape tubing? Uh, I, I, ne I never really, well, obviously, you know, if it's like an ellipse, then it's, you know, th that one has a pretty s simple to understand, I guess, uh, you know, that, that's yeah. going to change. It, it would be stiffer in one axis than in the other, I guess. Uh, but when it comes to the teardrop and other profiles, uh, wh what have you found with using those? Um, so it's subtle. The, you know, what the effective original diameter was is still... The driver, you lose, you know, teardrop. So typically, take the Columbus down tube I use a lot. So starts out as a 42 millimeter tube and then ends up as a 31 by 51 teardrop. Um, so I've lost a little bit of lateral um, stiffness. Um, but the torsional stiffness hasn't dropped off very much and it's already already started with a big tube. 42 is a pretty big tube of steel. Um, so that's still going to be a, 
what I would term a, a stiff frame, so good for larger riders. Um, and then I mostly overlies my top tubes, and I do that in-house, so I can, I can taper overlies them um, from the head tube to the seat tube. Uh, and, yeah, that one's just kind of the obvious thing that I... I want it to be stiffer laterally, so that you obviously put the oval on its side there. Um, yeah, all this thing, all these things are fairly subtle. And one of the <laughs> those projects on the that haven't been done yet. One of the projects I want to do is actually um, when each frame is on the alignment table is get deflection data. So load the frame in a couple of different ways and record the numbers, so I can start building a data pool of actual um, uh, stiffness data on frames. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen I've did, seen other I, things loaded and tested like that. You know, you just you give it a certain force at a certain location or distance from where it's supported, and you measure the deflection. But like to have actual yep. and you could you could do the same measurements over all your frames and you could enter that into a spreadsheet and then you could you could plot all sorts of graphs if you wanted to get fancy or you could try exactly you know, whatever. Like it, the frames are already bolted on the table it won't add hardly any time to hang a weight off it and measure the deflection um so i just need to i just need to do it it's just one of those like ideas i did do it with um I'd had this belief in my mind that a um, a chain stay bridge doesn't do anything, uh-huh. um, and because uh, to me it's like, well, with the chain stays clamped tight across the rear axle, adding that little bridge in there, I can't, you know, it shouldn't really make much difference. Um, and a friend of mine did a FEA analysis of it and reckoned it should improve the stiffness. I'm like, ah, I'm not sure. So <laughs> I I like that skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> I put a put a frame on the table, put the through axle in, and hung my weight off it, measured the deflection. Then I brazed in a bridge, and did it again, and it was exactly the same to thousands of an inch. Wow! Um, it's like yeah, that doesn't do anything. <laughs> Only reason to put that in is if I needed a place to attach a fender. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean it's good because you have like you know, well over a decade of practical experience building bicycles of various types. And you have the mechanical engineering background from way back to, to, because I I didn't actually do mechanical engineering coursework. Uh, I have a little bit of a sense of what you would learn. It seems like it would be a lot of cursory overview of, you know, like how you would go about because if you were working as a mechanical engineer, I think you would need to know how to solve problems. The university wouldn't necessarily prepare you for all that, but they would give you enough background that then in the field you might have a sense of where to look to find the answer or how to go about calculating, you know, like a, some sort of beam loading or some, you know, whatever this stuff is. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you would know enough of the background and maybe you'd have colleagues that you could ask for help. But anyway, you've been doing this work long enough, you know, bicycles well enough that if you want to run your own experiments, seems like you have that information at your fingertips or within your brain that you know how to engineer these experiments and be halfway scientific about it. Yeah, I think that's that's the... I think I haven't done enough enough practicals and understand the scientific method to to approach it 
correctly so that you can then trust the result. Um, it's um, it's interesting. I, I don't know if you were reading Velo News a few years ago, but they they did a a series of things where they were they were trying to put um, and I applaud them for it because they were trying to actually put data to their bike testing, mm-hmm. um, and and they did it correctly by stating their methodology and then giving the results and trouble is I'm looking at the methodology and going, yep, why are you doing it that way? Um, and uh, so, but that was good though, right? Because then you can critique it yourself. If they're actually saying, here's, here's what we're doing and here's the results. You can say, okay, well, doing that way doesn't make sense to me, but I can take this part of the results and, and use mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just that I think more than anything, the university education is, is, just teaching that critical thinking um and just, yeah and like you say knowing the tools are out there when you want to solve a problem so yeah it's not like i can re- necessarily remember all the formulae and <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and methods but i i, I know they're there so. yeah i think about in high in high school i took quite a bit of math and i i learned about i remember you know you would you would have the sort of example problems in the homework and whatever. And I remember we learned about how to apply a certain formula that if you wanted to figure out the area of, you know, like it's sort of complicated, different practical applications of these things. And I, you know, in trigonometry, especially, I completely forgot about trigonometry for nearly 10 years. And then I started to realize it's pretty useful in the shop actually. And then I didn't Mm -hmm. remember any of that stuff, but it, I learned it pretty quickly the second time around and then I had it actually memorized because I had a reason to know it. And if I had never done it the first time later on when I needed it, I never would have known that there was such a thing as, you know, trigonometry, but it's just like being exposed to it. Then later you'll kind of remember, I think I learned about this once. And then that, you know, if, yeah. even if that's all you ever got out of it, that's pretty freaking useful. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I've still got the trigonometry formula memorized from high school. I've just retained that because I use it so often. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I funny. used to I used to use it in the shop all the time. I didn't even bring my laptop computer to the shop that often, or well, I did, but I didn't use it for all that much stuff. And I would get out my like scientific calculator and I'd run Sokotoa and whatever, and then. Uh, more recently, the last four years or so, I use 2D and 3D CAD software a lot. And I find most of the time it's just easier to just draw the whole situation <laughs> and then give numbers to the the d- distances and angles that I, my knowns, and then it tells me the rest mm-hmm. of it. And so <laughs> I've gotten kind of lazy. And, and I, I don't think yeah. there's anything wrong with that, but CAD software, it, without that, I would be using trigonometry just constantly. Yeah, I I end up when I'm in the shop and I've forgotten to include something on a drawing or ever, just like um, sketching it out using the calculator on my phone and <laughs> yeah and busting out the angle um, yeah because otherwise I have to go up to, up to the office, turn the computer on, open the drawing, it's like that. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, I wanted before I forget to ask you about this. What, uh, so you don't have a tube swager, I'm sure. You, you're not tapering your own tubes, but you would use, you've used tapered tubes some, right? And like, uh, what do you know about, how, how, do you know much about how tapering a tube changes its, you know, 
its characteristics. I've never heard anyone really explain that. I just know that we typically see that in tubes that go from, you know, like a tube to tube junction to like a tube to a dropout, you know, like chain stays, seat stays, right. and fork blades will be tapered. And I don't know, how does that change the characteristics of the tube from like a structural perspective? Um, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it's not something I've really analyzed. Um, I mean, just the, the basic thing would be, I mean, take a chainstay, for example, you know, tapered chainstay. Um, so the, it, it's got the biggest diameter and size at, at the bottom bracket joint, which is where the loading is. And so because it's, I think we mostly see those tapered tubes on forks and, and chainstays, Mm-hmm. Um, where, where they are then triangulated. So um, you've got that extra structure built in. So the decreasing, the effective decreasing stiffness along the length of the tube, um, it's decreasing as it's getting closer to the next fixed point. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to actually see if there's a difference between using a straight gauge tube and a tapered tube yeah um, well, and, and the way that tube swagers work typically uh i mean i guess you could start with a tube that was butted maybe and and have it you know you could maybe have a consistent wall thickness as it tapered but i think a mm-hmm. lot of these tubes that we see the chain stays and seat stays they they have effectively i think a thicker wall as they approach the tapered tip because they started more as like a straight gauge tube and then they were just swaged and that sort of yeah. collected the material essentially into like a smaller diameter. And so, uh, you know, it, as the, as the wall thickness goes up, the diameter goes down. And, and I think typically that would make, you know, the same cross section of tube. Then if you reduce its diameter and increase its wall thickness, I would think it would be less stiff. Uh, but n- nonetheless, not a monumental difference maybe because the, as one goes up, the other one goes down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got one, where the stiffness goes up linear with the wall thickness and one where it goes up with the square of the diameter. So it'll be different, but not as drastically because of that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the really good tubes, when they can uh, swage it and maintain the wall thickness, um, like I wish Reynolds could figure out, figure out how to do that with the 953 because uh, that's when I was trying to build that super light frame. And... Um, those chain stays are about 100 grams overweight because that material is so hard, they can't squeeze it down that much. It's just, yeah, and and keep the wolf keep the wolf in. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it'd be fascinating to go visit the factory of where they're doing that because think about the pressure those machines must exert to to do that to those steels. Yeah, what uh, yeah. what is your experience? been like when you build with 953 or other super exotic alloys i never really worked with anything too exotic in the steels families um certainly a little Mm -hmm. bit you know some of the air hardening and stuff but uh, i know 953 has a reputation for like destroying hand files and just being generally kind of miserable to to machine and to cut and to file um but you know it it has yeah, such, it, it such interesting properties <laughs> then for, you know, being able to build a lightweight bicycle too. 
Yeah, I mean, potentially it's the the strongest alloy currently available for building bicycles. Um, just means it's also the hardest. Um, and yeah, one of another one of my backburner projects is I'd like to make a um, uh, an abrasive tube mitering machine. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I'll, if I do a, a stainless frame. I'm basically using a, you get one cut out of each hole saw <laughs> yeah. and doing, doing chromoly, I can get, you know, 10 or 20 frames. Um, so yeah, it's a bit it's challenging to, to work with for sure. Um, and then I think I'm getting pretty good with it now. Uh, but like learning to silver braze and, and build a fillet with silver such a different feel to to the low feeling bronze um and i think i've done enough frames i'm really getting a feel can and build, can build a nice clean fillet now but it's the temperatures are so different um and because stainless doesn't conduct heat well like keeping and, and those tubes are so thin as well it's not not overheating it is, is a challenge it's, um yeah, yeah moving Do you mean to say moving that- very fast did you mean to say because of the silver doesn't conduct heat as well? Do you mean to say that like when you're brazing a fillet in low fuming bronze, each time you add rod to that puddle, it's absorbing a lot of the heat and kind of like, you know, bringing your high temperature zone back down into a safe, you know, the kind of, it, it heats it, up, you add, and then it gets kind of, you have a second to breathe and you move forward and it you can kind of manage <laughs> your heat that way. And the silver doesn't absorb as much heat maybe. Um, it's more that stainless is a poor conductor of heat. Okay. Um, yeah, it's got a, oddly, it's got different thermal conductivity to chromoly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the heat stays right there, and you don't want it because if if the stainless gets overheated, then nothing will stick to it. Yeah. And you kind of have to start over. <laughs> um, so it's al- almost wonder if I I've been thinking about whether I should have a. a Oxypropane, oxybutane torch for doing for doing stainless because I'm running the oxycetylene super low, um, and it's almost still too much heat. Yeah, that's um, interesting. But I, yeah, I've got good enough now of just moving the torch fast and um, work around it. Uh, I mean, yeah, heat control. That was. <laughs> Another thing I learned at Bike Friday was running running in production and doing all the pre-brazing, just like one, running the torch wide open and moving really fast. Yeah. Um, and so you like get used to really controlling the heat. And so now I can turn the torch down and move a bit slower and just be in perfect control of everything, which is nice removing the, the time constraint of a production line. So... Uh, something I've noticed, you know, I don't know why this is both Brompton and bike Friday. You see fillet brazing in a production environment for these bikes. And yet most of the rest of the world that's still building steel bicycles, it's all TIG welded. Uh, you know, what, what, what's the choice for low fuming bronze brazing in these applications? Do you know? Yeah. So bike Friday, Frames are primarily TIG welded. 
Um, and then there's just, just some joints were some joints were braised because that was a better solution for that joint. Gotcha. Um, but that's that's my biggest regret of my time at Bike Friday is I didn't put myself into welding for a few months because um, I can run a TIG welder, but to have had that experience of welding ten bikes a day would have like, really got those skills good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was yeah I was it's hard to run the production line from under a hood. Um, yeah. I can't, and any other station, I can keep my head up and look around and, <laughs> and see. So. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a, a welder in the shop at the moment. Well, at some point I'll get one because there's some joints that are just better welded. Yeah. Um, uh, but overall, overall I like, bra I like brazing. Yeah, well, you know, as long as you you know how to make it work and you know what you like about it and if it suits you, then then that's fine for you. And, you know, the production world, like, yeah, I am a little bit, you know, perplexed sometimes when I see larger scale companies using it. Like, I, I don't know anyone uh, at Brompton, but I know they, they do a lot of that. And there are some other companies too. And it just seems like, yeah, it seems like it would have to cost more at scale than TIG welding, but I don't know. Maybe there's more to it than I realize, and maybe their decision is, is really uh, actually a lot more brilliant than I realize. No, I agree. I mean, I've seen videos of Brompton's factory, and, and they've got a lot of technology around it with uh, preheaters and, and things going on. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure what their rationale is, apart from they've always done it that way. Um, so... Yeah, and I guess once, you know, once you've got the infrastructure and and it's they, they've definitely got a pride in producing those raw fillets that they do that basically uh, don't need to be finished. So yeah, no, the, uh, the ones that I've seen certainly yeah. look very nice. So um, yeah. so let's talk some about uh, I mean the single sided forks and even rear ends that i've seen on some of your bikes uh popularly cannondale has their lefty suspension bike you know suspension forks on their mountain bikes and maybe some other bicycles too but the single-sided support it seems to sort of <laughs> to me it seems to kind of go against what i would assume would be you know a superior way to build it which is supporting it from both sides but i you know i've never really heard the argument for a single-sided support and also it just looks cool as hell to have it like only supported from <laughs> one side it's just really fun and i remember way back seeing okay. a bike that you did with a belt drive single speed and like even the rear end was just supported from one side it was very very cool looking bike uh you know what draws you to do that so it's interesting isn't it that um everywhere else in our environment stub axles are totally common so cars um some motorcycles, uh, trolleys, like um, having a wheel on the stub axle is a kind of a standard standard way of doing things. And for some reason, it's not widely adopted on bicycles. Um, so, uh, yeah, for me, it was back in, well, I think it was 2008 or nine that um, uh, fair wheel bikes, came to me and said, we've got this customer who wants to bike, I'm wondering, could you do a single-sided bike? And I was like, uh, probably. 
let me think about that. <laughs> um, and so then I went away and designed the rear hub that has the bearings in the frame and then the, the belt drive on the outside of the frame. So as the additional bonus, you don't need a, a split in the belt, a split in the frame to install the belt. Um, and splits the loading because you've got the drive on the outside and the, the wheel loading on the inside. Um, so I, that first hub, I just hand machined hours on the lathe to bore that thing out and, and get it all done. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, yeah, used a, <clears throat> a lefty hub on the front, but on the right, um, and modified a disc brake to mount on the right-hand side. <clears throat> um, yeah, and that was one of those projects is like, I put it all together before I painted it because it's first time doing it. I was like, and when I rode it down the road, I was like, oh, it's just a bike. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't tell. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, uh -huh. So that was that was kind of cool that just my my basic assumptions on, okay, if I just increase the size of the chainstay and give it what triangulation I can behind the bottom bracket shell, um, and that will be, be totally fine. Um, and actually, that very first bike, the owner just posted on my website that he had, he's been riding it for what, 10, over 10 years now. Um, and he said how many miles he clocked or whatever and said it's still going great. So it's like, oh, that's awesome. Because <laughs> um, it's not like I had the resources to stick it on a fatigue machine or um, do anything like that. So it's just took the basic assumptions and add a, add a safety factor and build it. Um, so then the other bikes I've done since then been along the same lines, uh, except then I added the, the modular hub system I came up with. Um, so I was prompted by a guy in Europe who wanted to be able to <clears throat> quickly pull the wheels off because then the bike would fit between the seats on a train. Uh -huh. um, and so this is something I thought about for a while because my original hub design it was really difficult to take the rear wheel off and then the belt was left hanging, hanging loose. And, um, the one I did with the disc brake, then you had to remove the caliper in order to take the, the wheel off and, and things. So I came up with this modular design. So the front and rear wheels are the same and they slide onto a, a trilobe spline on the hub body um, and lock on with a, a single Allen key and it leaves the the drivetrain and the disc rotors on the bike. Wow. So you're never messing with the, um, having to worry about your rotors or your drivetrain or anything. So, um, That's super cool. So yeah, so in that, in that case, I think that, that gives an actual practical application to doing the single-sided wheels. Mm -hmm. um, because there aren't really compelling reasons to do it apart from like, yeah, you can change a flat without having to take the wheel out. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's, there's not tremendously compelling reasons to do it apart from we can. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and the people who want something unique and, and different, um, uh, enjoy that. So, 
do, fun to do you feel like do you feel like in order to make a bike that rides the same it would inherently be heavier or it, it that's all just depending on you know if you use a similar sort of quality of construction and and whatever that you could achieve a similar sort of outcome with regard to weight probably if it was really optimized design the weight would be similar i think currently those righty frames and forks have been a little bit heavier because yeah. i'm erring on the side of of caution um yeah, certainly yeah uh and, you know, and the, the people who want those builds, the, the weight, not like the bikes are heavy, they're normally 18 or 19 pounds or something, so it's not not a big deal. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very remarkable and striking sort of look. I love what I'm hearing. I don't know if I had noticed that before, the tri-lobe design on the hubs. Um, I've seen a lot of your work, but I don't remember if I had seen that up close. That's really cool. And that it keeps, yeah, like the, you know, any any of the parts that don't need to come off with the wheels, you know, just keep them on the frame, keep the front and the rear the same, if that makes sense. That's really cool. Uh, and, you know, put it put it in this package like that. Yeah, you see motorcycles and so, so many things do just support the wheel from, from the one side. Yeah. Yeah, and the only, the only bike designer who's really done a lot of it is Mike Burrows. Like almost everything he builds has a a single sided nose starting from the original Lotus Pursuit bike um, back in the 90s um, and uh, all the way through to his, his cargo bikes and stuff have, have single sided. He, he, he goes a step further because he doesn't worry about the, the wheels being in line. Oh, yeah. Uh, hmm. So, like, so like the, the, he'll keep the rear frame tube centered straight back and have the cassette on one side and the wheel on the other. So the rear wheels offset to the left by, you know, 40, 50 millimeters. Uh, <laughs> apparently, apparently they, apparently they ride just fine. <laughs> wow. That's funny. I would not assume. Well, I mean, on some level I would assume that it, you know, if you were making very maybe slow speed, tight turning radius, maybe it would feel a little bit different or maybe it's imperceptible. I don't know. It reminds me. Yeah, of the, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't written one, but it'd be interesting. It reminds me of the discussion about, you know, in our in our bubble of artisan frame builders, a lot of people really love to align frames really well. It's a, it's just you know you can put numbers to it, and it's it's fun to chase perfection. And certainly, if the alignment is bad, you can have issues, but. Uh, from a lot of the people that I've talked to about this and from my own experiences, it seems like the alignment needs to be pretty far off for it to ride differently. Like you might have clearance issues with your tire or a crank arm or something, and it might look really cheesy because it's not centering somewhere. But uh, from from the things that I've heard and seen myself empirically, it doesn't seem like the alignment is quite quite as critical as we might think in order to making the bike ride straight and maybe you can get away with more than you realize in terms of the oh, not even having yeah. the same track. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's a pretty uh, single, single track vehicle is pretty, uh, pretty flexible on, uh, on it. Yeah, definitely satisfying to build a straight bicycle for sure. Um, 
that would be an interesting thing to do, actually, wouldn't it? It's like deliberately misalign a bike and throw it together and go and see what, see if I can tell. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's always more testing to be done. <laughs> yeah, no, because it, it feels a little bit silly sometimes, the, uh, you know, the, the number that you're maybe trying to hold, that some people try to hold their tolerance to, you know, that it's, uh, I, I feel like um, weldments are just, not really a precision thing like I, I i never did a whole lot of metal work until i got into bikes and i was trying to make you know the the most accurate you know precision sort of structures that i could that were really as straight as i could measure and all that which is not easy uh because anytime you heat up the metal and you join it you know whether it's brazing or welding or whatever it's just moving around and and um and you know especially if your miters aren't perfect all those things and then I got more into machining and using old bridge ports and stuff. You can kind of hold tighter numbers. You maybe get something within a thousandth of an inch or, you know, uh, <laughs> God, this is hard for me to say what that would be in millimeters. Thousandth of an inch is, uh, uh, anyway, close enough. But, <laughs> but, uh, it's the, the point is then I got into CNC machining and you can hold very tight figures uh, with CNC machining. And so, so anyway, uh, then to step back into welding more recently for different projects, I just realized like it, it is a very crude process and to hold even, you know, 10 or 15 thousandths of an inch for something sometimes is, is you know, is pretty challenging. And uh, so anyway, it's, it's just important that you know what the numbers actually need to be before you chase your tail too much trying to trying to hold some sort of tolerance yeah. that maybe is nearly impossible and also is maybe totally irrelevant. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, have realistic goals and understand what the outcome is. <laughs> yeah. And the thing I always say when the alignment discussion comes up is just like, if you're, let's say you're running a business and you have customers, it's like, they want a quality product. They want it to be good, but they're probably going to lose a lot more sleep over like poor communication or missed deadlines, or you painted it the wrong color or any of those things probably are a lot more important to them than like, that last 5% of the difference that you can achieve on the, <laughs> on the frame alignment. And not to say that it doesn't matter, yeah. but it's just important to keep the sort of big picture in your head. It's true. Yeah. The, um, that's part of the, uh, Toyota process is, um, value added. Like you only want to be doing work that adds value that the customer wants to pay for. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's trying to, remove the waste from the process so that you're only doing stuff that adds value um and yeah, ch chasing an alignment around and around for an hour like isn't <laughs> isn't adding value <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean, we've, I mean, all, we've all we've all we've all done it at times but yeah <laughs> yeah that's for me my experience getting into precision metalwork stuff is that in the beginning you know, I, I have no idea what the tolerance should be or or what's even possible. And, you know, you get yourself a pair of calipers or a micrometer and you can measure something. You can put numbers to it. And, of course, even that requires some level of, like, uh, uh, technique. And, uh, you know, like, that, that, there's a little bit of a feel that goes into that and knowing how to use the instrument. But, mm -hmm. but anyway, now that you can put a number to it, well, you know, that number should always be exactly you know, to whatever resolution, if you can read to, you know, like a hundredth of a millimeter, well then, you know, let's just make it read, you know, 
1.00 <laughs> but like uh yeah yeah anyway you have to kind of you have to go through that phase i feel like to then eventually realize like you know that a certain range is what's acceptable and other times it can be looser and other times it can be tighter and you know it's just kind of hard to know in the beginning what that actually looks like yeah well it's like um you know learning engineering drawing when you dimension a drawing you're specifying a degree of tolerance by um, how many decimals you put on the the dimension. Yeah. Um, and so I have to chuckle a little bit when I see a, a, a bike frame design with a tenth of a millimeter dimensions mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Because it's like no, no, no one's building this frame to a tenth of a millimeter. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, mine, mine, mine are rounded to whole whole millimeters. <laughs> Yeah, um, makes more sense. Um, but but yeah, the um, having that production background, it was kind of cool then applying it to a one man shop doing custom work, because um, I've spent so much time thinking about efficiencies. So one of those is my shop is very much a one man shop, like I've set up, so I don't walk around very much. Everything's just like turning (laughs) to reach for stuff so there's no waste in movement um and then trying to make it as impossible as possible to not make errors that's one of toyota's thing is is the the go no go yeah um tooling um so for example i've never welded a or brazed a bottom bracket shell in backwards because i can't because my jig has threaded fixtures to hold it into the jig. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it just, I don't have to think about that. I just have to thread it in. If it doesn't thread into that side of the bottom bracket, I've got the wrong side of the bottom bracket. So, um, yeah, it's just trying to always think about things like that of like, how can I remove the need for thought from this process um, yeah. as much as possible, like make it, make it repeatable. And to make it so that even if you you are absolutely capable of not screwing up the the thread orientation, and uh, you know you're a smart guy, you can handle that. But like, why would you waste your brain capacity on something like that? <laughs> like, you only have yeah, so much exactly. bandwidth. You should be putting that <laughs> bandwidth into adding value. I guess would be the the Toyota production sort of way of thinking about that. But like, well, yeah, or the yeah, the continuous improvement. Yeah, like, like do something. How, like, how can I improve this process? I I got this axe to grind. I'm always frustrated that I've been implanted so much in my life with this idea, this thinking that I get from I don't know old timers or I don't know who it is. Certain people that just say, "Ah, oh, you don't need that. That's too fancy." You know, just <laughs> just get it done with what you have. Just grab the hammer and hammer the nail and move on with it. And I, my, my way of thinking is, I, you know, I want to develop a system for things that's going to make my life easier and save me time. And so anyway, I always get a little annoyed with that sort of dismissive thinking that you'll hear sometimes about, you know, we don't, we don't need anything fancy here, but it doesn't necessarily need to be fancy. But I think like uh, to, to take a moment every time you go through a cycle, like building a bike frame and just leave yourself a note here. So you don't need to look up that information or run it through your calculator the yeah. next time or to, uh, 
you know, like to label the drawers so you don't have to open all six drawers to find the thing or, or, you know, a lot of organizational stuff goes so far or, you know, like when you, when you go to Braze or there was a thing, a lean manufacturing thing I saw once where they were showing a, a production cell and at the chop saw, they just had a dedicated pair of uh, ear, ear protection and eye protection that lived at the saw. So when you went to make a right. cut with the chop saw, you didn't need to go anywhere. Like everything you needed to use that chop saw, they just bought a duplicate of all those tools and it just lived at the saw. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems kind of obvious when you see it, you say, oh, yes, of course. But, but you know, it took somebody, I think, thinking a little bit critically about like how, how to make that better. And they, you know, they yeah. spent... $25 or whatever. And they bought the stuff. And then now every time you go to use the saw, you have everything you need right there. And it encourages you actually to be safer too, which is great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Five, five S in your work area is always a wonderful thing. And I have the same thing, like both the mill and the lathe have all the tools they need at that station. Um, and, and they go, as soon as I've used them, they go back in the house. So it's like everything has a place. Um, um, yeah, it's uh, it's good just to to be organised and have. Oh, and yeah, you know, I used to write. I was writing a lot of operating procedures when I was at Bike Friday, because um, you know, so I create create the operation manuals for each station and um, train people into that. And once they'd mastered. The procedure. If they then saw improvements, then it could be changed. But they, I wanted people to do it my way first. <laughs> yeah, I'd proven I'd proven that. Um, and so, I have on, on on my wall in my shop. I have some SOPs written for some of the things I don't do that often. Yep. So I don't have to retain it in my head. But it's like, oh yeah, how do I build a stem? All right, I go do this, this, this. Right? Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. That what you were saying about, you know, I, that's exactly what Ross Schaefer said when I interviewed him about his his time with Salsa was that he he wanted he wanted the new folks who were working in his shop to learn to do it his way before mouthing off about their great idea about how to do it better. He's like, <laughs> he's like until right. you can do it our way and you can do it just as well as we can do it, I'm not interested in your ideas. But then, for sure, yes, like please share your ideas; they'll probably be good. But like you, you can't, you can't think, you can't honestly think that your ideas are so good when you haven't even really learned or gotten proficient with our way yet. And even if they are, we're maybe not ready to hear them yet. <laughs> you just showed up <laughs> yesterday, like just, just get to work. Yeah. But you should, yeah, it's, it's, uh... it's tricky. Cause yeah, it's like you, you would want to encourage people if they had good ideas to share them and to feel comfortable to share them. But yeah, that's sort of the classic thing. It's like, some people are too complacent and they just, they kind of just do whatever and they don't even notice the waste and they don't notice the potential improvement. And then other people, they don't even really want to do the job. They just want to kind of tell you how you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, for me, I just always enjoyed the game, the gamification of it. Of yes. Like, how can I make, how can I make this better next cycle? How can I do it faster? How can I get a better result? Um, because then it makes it fun and engaging, whereas if you t- otherwise it just feels repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and then and also for me it was like, well, if I if I can finish this ahead of cycle, then I can take that 
that 10 minutes I've got left to, to make this improvement and try it out on the next cycle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I end up, end up you know, there are a couple of stations where I end up almost halving the cycle time over a few weeks of just chipping away at it. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Fun times. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I don't track that stuff quite so much. Like it's, um, cause I don't, don't need to because I'm not running to attack time. Um, try and be as efficient as possible. But honestly, at this point, by the time I get in the shop, the actual building of the frame is the easy part. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this is something actually Sam Whittingham told me before I started the business. He's like, yeah, you know, the frame building is going to be the easy bit. The, running the business is, is the challenge. Um, and, uh, and that's very true. It's, um, getting all the all the logistics systems in place to run the business and deal with all the suppliers and all the customers and make sure everyone always gets a reply on time and is kept updated and all the parts are going to be here when they need to be and um, although most of that's gone out the window in the last year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's something I want to I, I want to ask frame builders more often is how do they manage the information because i think that that is a really it's a relatively challenging thing to do and i think also uh if you seriously want to be like a professional frame builder and handle you know 50 bikes a year or 30 bikes a year or whatever it is that you do or more in a bigger company you need to be able to manage that information um other than just manually so that you know, you, you rem, you're given reminders maybe to, to send updates to your customer periodically throughout the build and that you know all of the raw materials for the frame that you need to order and you know all of the different components that you need to order and you're not ordering them way ahead of time, but you are ordering them in time so that they show up, hopefully, and that you're not manually pouring through. Like, for instance, I know if you were to sell a custom bike to somebody and you had all of the discussion through an email chain you might have 100 emails in that chain, or maybe you have 25, but I think a lot of times it's going to be a high number of emails in that chain. And so if you have to scroll through that whole email exchange every time you're looking for one specific thing, like for instance, what specification bottom bracket did they want again? Or wait, they said that they wanted this color and this color, but then I think we discussed that at a later date and they changed their mind. <laughs> and so like you need to be able to keep track of all that information because I think you could lose multiple hours per build or at least, you know, half an hour or more per build, if not way more, uh, just, just like looking up information that should have been cataloged somewhere centralized and having to remember all of these things to do them at the right time. And, and like inventory yeah. is, is a big part of lean manufacturing, but like, let's say that you wanted to have enough inventory to keep yourself busy building, but you didn't want to carry such an expense, you know, like you didn't want to have a hundred thousand dollars in bicycle parts and frame components in your garage, even if you had the space. So you need to order just enough to keep you busy. And like, that's not a simple thing to do unless you can manage that information. I'm curious what you've done. And I guess what I want to say before I ask you that is just that I'm a little bit afraid that I personally am interested in this. And maybe this gets a little bit away from the romantic theme of built because I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are not actually looking for advice, how to run a frame building business. They're maybe more interested in frame building as like a craft 
but screw it. I know some of my, <laughs> some of my listeners would love to hear about this. What do you do to like manage that information? Yeah, I'm, I'm a spreadsheet guy. Um, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I learned a lot of this at bike Friday. There was a, there was a period where we lost our, um, purchaser. And so for a while that work got divvied up between the rest of the managers. And so I, I was responsible for all of the, uh, shop supplies. Um, and so, and it needed to be streamlined because I just want to do one order a month or something or, you know, or, or just have it triggered when to order. And so everything had a, had a, had a, a Kanban, um, that triggered and then could, had a very easy, um, walk, walk past the board, see where the, see, see where there's any gaps and order those part numbers. Um, so that was a visual one. Um, and then built another tool for spokes that, you know, once a month count the spokes because it's hard to, it was hard to pull spokes correctly to all the bikes, you know, to be able to have the lengths be exactly right in every, every build, depending on, because rims and hubs change so much. Um, mm-hmm. so I built, built a, an Excel tool. She just tapped in the inventories and it had a column that was calculated the average usage and any ones that were going to go run out before the lead time on getting more would turn red. So it's like, I've ordered that, 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 that. Um, so just making it easy to not run out of things. Um, cause having spent like a whole day cutting spokes, I didn't want to run out of spokes ever again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so on my business, I have a master spreadsheet for all my projects, um, and says where they're at and anything that requires action is, is turned red until I've taken care of it. Um, and then each customer has a spreadsheet with that bike and the spec and recorded, um, on all the parts, if, if they're, if I've got them in stock or if they're ordered and what the ETA is. And so, and I had to add, I got really stressed last summer with all the part shortages and like my, uh, my phone going off with QBP alerts like five times a day. It's like, it was driving me crazy. So like, okay, let's reset this. And I built another whole tool spreadsheet with all my back orders on with everybody. Cause some of them are going back, going back a year and going forward a year at this point in terms of, the whole situation is so crazy. Um, so at least now, then I can just go in, you know, log into SRAM or Shimano and once a month and update my spreadsheet with the current ETAs um, and have some sense of what's going on. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, building, I <laughs> definitely initially, I just carried everything in my head, which was, was fine at the start, but not a way to continue. Um, so yeah, having it downloaded and in a place that gives easy, easy, easy visual reminder of what action is needed next is is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and then running then learning to run QuickBooks as well is the other the other piece of it because um, which is kind of cool now. Like I actually like look forward to getting my 
um, bank statements at the end of the month. It's like, oh, I can re- reconcile QuickBooks. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, interesting um, when you put yourself through the experience of trying to actually run your business. I think things that you never would have otherwise been that interested in start to become kind of interesting just because they're like relevant to the, you know, certain things that stress you out. Now there's a solution. It's usually like organization or something. It's like, you never thought you'd get so interested in this dorky crap, but like it makes your life better. (laughs) So now you're pretty interested. And and it spills into your regular life too. Like I've, I've, I've Kanban's in the kitchen. That's awesome. Kanban is, is, is the, the signal that you need to take action and, and replace something, right? So it's like, oh, when I pull this jar from this shelf, it means I need to get more of that next time I go to the store because that's the last one. Like, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I remember hearing that with uh, a guy who was a Toyota manager, and he said he had, a, he had an SOP for showering in the mornings. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It's just... Yeah, it's, um, I've done, efficiently. I made um, I made a little bit more informed. You know, I've never had to write actual SOPs, but just I take notes on some of the repetitive stuff that I do for like machining operations and stuff. And I made one for the oil change in my truck the one time because it just seemed like every time I did an oil change at the end of it, I felt like okay, that was pretty easy, except that I didn't remember anything that I needed to know and I had to figure it out again. (laughs) So like, you know, I actually just, I just took a series of photos of like, well, you're going to want this magnet on a stick and you're going to want this half inch drive ratchet with this particular extension. You're going to want this oil filter wrench and you're going to want to use, you can block up the truck this way. And, you know, it's like when you actually just grab all of the tools out of the toolbox one time and then you, Mm -hmm. you've just given yourself this refresher for like 30 seconds and you read the notes well, then it goes really smoothly. And I only change the oil like once or twice a year or something. So like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just a, it really helpful for that sort of thing. I heard one, somebody said that they had to file some government or tax related thing. Like maybe it was quarterly or maybe it was annually, but like they never remembered how to work this terrible government website, you know? So like they just made themselves a little video and they just watched this video of themselves like, like a screen flow showing how to like put it together and submit it. But see these sorts of things, it's funny because you think of them like solving a business problem for just being efficient enough to afford to run the business that you want. But then that kind of bleeds over into your normal life. Cause once you realize <laughs> the, the like painlessness of being organized, <laughs> you like, you just yeah. want to be more organized. It just makes everything easier. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, and it spills over like when I build a a travel bike, um, I supply the customer with you know instructions for packing and unpacking, complete the photographs of each step and the tools required, and here's what you do. And um, so yeah, it's good. It's good to have the practice of producing that sort of documentation. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I know what you mean about just the stuff you're like hey i did this i did this last year like how the hell did i do it <laughs> yeah um so in, in the shop i have a notebook and every every project has a page and it lists every you know, exact 
specs of every piece of tubing used, and then any um, any techniques or processes I've done, I make a note um, so that when I build something similar in the future, I'm, how do I do that again? I'll look back, okay, I put, put it in this vice with this piece and squash it this much or whatever it is, because um, then I don't have to reinvent it every time. Yeah. Uh, the piece I need to do better with is, you know, when you end up just like making a little tool to do something, um, that's some fiddly little task, and then you don't do that again. And then a year later, like, I did this before. I think I made a tool for that and like end up making it again. <laughs> like, I need to do better at labeling my little random tools and putting them on oh, my phone. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one of those things I heard about shop organization was uh, if you can't find it, you don't own it. And I think about that sometimes. <laughs> like if you have like a material, like a scrap rack or something, or you had um, – like uh, I have a like a toolbox with a bunch of drawers, and um, most of the drawers are halfway organized pretty decently, but the one drawer is just it's a bigger, deeper drawer, and it's a catch-all for like all the stuff that I don't use that often. I don't know where to put it, and I have a in my brain I sort of have a sense of what's in there, but like my employee would never think to look there when he's trying to find something, and for me a lot of times I might give up before I even find it because it's just so difficult <laughs> to get it out. Like, you know, it's a, if you can't find it, you don't own it. And if it takes you five or 10 minutes to find it, that's, it ends up being pretty expensive in the context of the business where you have real overhead. Yeah. When I, when I moved my shop a, a year and a half ago, um, you know, I got like 90% of the, the install done and then, you know, kind of was over it and wanted to get back to work. And so that last 10% bled into that period of like, okay, now I have to unpack that next box because it, it's probably got the thing I need in it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when I, whenever I have occasionally a friend will come and be in the shop with me or whatever and, and it, it drives them crazy because I can't find anything, I'd be like, I need such and such a tool. I'm like, fourth drawer, right-hand side, tucked behind the other thing. Because like, it's like, <laughs> uh -huh. it's, it's organized in a way that isn't visually clear for anybody else, but I know where everything is. Yeah. Um, most, of, most of the time. Yeah. I got a, one of those like, you know, digital electric label makers years and years ago. And that's a lot of fun. Half of what I use it for is just puns and bad jokes, but also it's really, <laughs> it's just really nice to, I mean, you can, you can handwrite on a piece of masking tape or something, but just being able to label drawers, especially because you know, a drawer is a nice way to store things and keeps it from getting dirty, but it, it, it's visually um, opaque or whatever. You can't see inside. It obscures yeah, yeah. your vision. So not having to pull every drawer open every time really adds up to saving a lot of time. And then I think having the labels on maybe helps you memorize things a little bit faster too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I borrowed one of those when I, all my small parts or the, all the tiny drawer cabinets all have printed labels on them. Yeah, don't want to be digging around. Just want a want a M four by twenty bolt. I'm going to pull that drawer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, uh, you're my first guest on the on the organization podcast. <laughs> That's like half of what we talked about. I love this stuff. I think. Um, yeah, I wonder sometimes with this show that I do, 
you know, I, I'm interested in frame building, but I'm also interested in running a business and I'm also interested in, you know, certain things that maybe not all of the people who come to the show are interested in. So uh, on the one hand, I want to keep things related to what I assume my audience is most interested in. But on the other hand, a lot of the things I'm interested in are probably interesting to other people. And I think if you really did want to run a frame building business, if you were serious about that, I think one of the biggest hurdles is just being organized enough to handle all the information. That's a, it's a huge challenge. I talked to uh, Chris at full moon bikes about this a little bit and, uh, and various other people too, but it's, I, I think I want to talk about that a little bit more in the future with different builders. It's like, especially the working professionals like yourself, like, you know, how, how do you stay on top of it? Especially when the supply chain is so upside down, it's just, it's gotta be so much more stressful than usual. You really need, you know, some tools at your disposal to, to stay on top of it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I really appreciate that about, about the podcast that it delves into all these different aspects and hearing different people's experiences and solutions and stuff is great. Um, and, and yeah, with the, I've ended up, I did my, my year in inventory and I'm, I'm sitting on more than twice as much stuff as I would normally be. Um, because for the past six months, I've, anytime I've been able to find something, I've bought two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, just, and I, I don't like sitting on that much stock, but it's given me more chance of being able to deliver the bikes. Um, there's been a few gaps I've had to fill with eBay purchases and, and things, but, um, so far, um, nothing has been really late because of parts. It's, but everybody knows what's going on. I just let all my customers know that we're going to do our best and here's the dates we've got now. But the most important thing for me that I always expect from my suppliers is I understand things happen. Just let me know. Like, don't, yeah. don't make me chase you. Yep. And I try and do that philosophy of rather than you know, tell the customer, okay, this has happened. We'll push back a couple of weeks or, you know, or here's your option of an alternate part or, or whatever. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I, I think you can always, uh, most of the time in my experience with my customers, if you just get out ahead of the problem and you are clear and communicative, communicative and you offer alternatives and, you know, you, you apologize for the inconvenience, most people are pretty understanding. And from my experience as like a customer, from all these different vendors and companies, the thing that really drives me nuts is when they communicate things poorly. And, and so yeah, it just makes sense to me that it's like the, the main thing is like m most people understand if you can help them understand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Communication is, is the key for sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk some about the racks that you've been doing. You do one thing I appreciate about your bikes. You know, some frame builders are more of a frame builder and some frame builders are more of like a whole bike builder. And yeah, it just seems like you have, you know, some of your more like commuter oriented bikes. You really have a lot of work into those with the racks and the fork and the whole frame set and integ integrating for fenders is it's simple sounding, but you know, it's just, there's, there's just more and more and more details all the time. And then, you know, one thing can kind of get in the way of another thing. So you need to be aware of it all. And anyway, um, it's pretty cool that you 
you do those builds that include all of the details and the racks look very slick also and i wanted to say that uh you know thanks Chad. <laughs> well, uh, what, what drives you to want to build those kinds of bikes is that something that customers ask for or are those the type of bike that you also like yeah or? that was yeah that was so the the first one this was about 12 years ago um i called it my winter bike because i would just destroy my bicycles in the winter. So I was, when I was first here in Oregon, I was using my bike Friday as my commuter bike. And by the end of the winter, I'd need to replace the front rim because it would have worn through. And I'd maybe have a couple of gears that worked. It would just, in the whole derailleur would be a big black gunky mess because I never did any maintenance on it. I just rode the thing. Um, and so when the Gates belt drive came out, I was like, ooh, that's what I want. Um, but it wasn't until... Um, Microshift brought out a, a drop bar shifter for the Alfine hub. I could actually build a drop bar belt drive bike. Um, and so that was the first bike, winter bike, which, and then I wanted to integrate the rack into the frame. Um, and that gave me the opportunity to lower the rack and make it narrower to get the panniers as close as possible to the wheel for the best ability. Um, and when I was drawing that up, it's like, oh, I can just continue the, if I continue the top tube straight through the seat tube and I can become the anchor point for the rack. Um, and then that gives me built in hard points for the mountain defender as well. Um, and that bike has been amazing. It's must, it's probably got, I'm guessing like 80,000 miles on it now. Um, I'm on my third set of belt components and my second hub. But apart from that, I've, I really do no maintenance on it at all. I mean, I, I maybe clean it once a year just to, cause I feel bad, <laughs> um, but to have a bike, you can just ride in the rain and hang up and you don't ever have to worry about is incredible. Um, and, uh, yeah particularly being living somewhere that's pretty wet. Um, so that was the first one. And then, yeah, when people come and say, Ooh, I want one like that, please. Like, great. You can do that. Um, so I've done some more evolved versions with bigger tires and, uh, dynamo lighting and, and other things added. Uh, but kind of boils back to that, that basic premise of a, a no maintenance bike. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, bicycle, bicycle is a bicycle is a tool. Because so I, um, my wife and I lived car free completely for seven years, um, and I'm pretty motivated to do everything by bicycle. So everything I do for the business is by bike. So uh, <laughs> they laugh at me at the the place where I go get my my gas tanks from when I roll up with the bike trailer <laughs> with a settling tag in it. Um, and then you know, I've got the cargo bike for taking bikes to UPS and everything else. So, um, yeah, bicycle is such a great tool for, for everything, really. Yeah, I, uh, I want to build... Um... 
some sort of cargo bike or a sidecar bike or i guess i could just get a pull behind trailer but um for for me and my dog to commute to work every day now that uh, uh in michigan where i've been for a little over a year now my shop that i rent the only place that i could really find that was practical is it's just too far away across a whole bunch of big difficult to navigate roads and it would be pretty treacherous and time consuming to get there every day unfortunately um but my the new location is maybe a 10 or 15 minute bike ride and there's really nothing too challenging about it and i'm very excited about that but i bring my dog with me every day to work so you know she's not mm-hmm. going to climb into my backpack or anything and like she's not going <laughs> to it's the city like i can't it can't have her running on the street next to me or she'd trip me on a leash or something so so we need some sort of cargo bike and i'm i don't know when i'll get to it yeah. or if i'll find something for sale but i'm very excited about it because i love you know the the thought of biking to work and i think it would be adorable of course to take my dog with me that way yeah it'd be cool to have like a back seat so she can be in front of you and yeah. uh and ride along we've 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 used a trailer for our dogs um which has been great yeah uh, that's a totally practical yeah, yeah. starting point i think i should probably just do that mm-hmm. um just to get going because yeah i think a, like a little kid trailer or something she probably wouldn't love it at first but she might like it just because she gets to come along and and the breeze I'm, it's hard to say our, our dog loved it because she she just circled back and forth smelling everything all the yeah. time so um yeah i think it's pretty fun <laughs> my dog will do a thing um where if she sees like a motorcycle she tries to chase after it and attack it and bark at it and <laughs> inevitably that would come up from time to time so i'm not sure because like she's almost jumped out of the car window at like high speed <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we've we, helped... we always we're we always had our dogs secured inside the trailer just in case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's it. Is like uh, some sort of. Uh, I'll, I'll have to work out the kinks. I have to engineer a system, right? So. There you go. Yeah. But anyway, it, it'll be no, a lot of fun being able to do that every day. Yeah, like there's been very few times in my life where I've had to drive on any regular basis, and it just makes me sad. Um, whereas. A commute on a bike, no matter what, is always an awesome way to start the day. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's It's been unfortunate for me. There haven't been a whole lot of times in my life where I really could bike commute to my shop very practically. Um, you know, usually it's like over an hour's worth of commuting in one direction and living in climates where there's not, you know, the weather is, it's not fair weather year round, you know, like in the you know, five degrees Fahrenheit with ice on the roads and, you know, over an hour in good weather. It's just, it's not that practical, (laughs) unfortunately. And yet I would, I would love to do it more. And so, yeah, finally I'm going to be in a position that'll be a lot more suited to that. And it's, it's awesome. I see these little signs in my neighborhood, the people in their front yard, they have these, these signs that say, uh, walk more, drive less. And I'm like (laughs) totally behind the sentiment, but it's also, it kind of annoys me because it's just like the only way that you can achieve that is like to live in a really walkable, nice neighborhood typically. And uh, like, those are yeah. more expensive neighborhoods. It's like, it's like, must be nice. Like it sounds real nice. Like, I don't know. Kind of annoys me, but, My, but I, I want to, I want to definitely uh, walk more and bike more. Yeah. Well, my, my late, my latest tool in that arsenal is um, I've got a Velomobile. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a, a recumbent trike with a full body shell on it. Holy um, cow. And 
Yeah, and I used that for commuting when I was at White Friday because that saved my sanity with the, the dark and the wet and the cold. Yeah. Um, but I haven't been using it for a few years because I've been working at home. Um, but I've just put a Bosch motor in it um, and uh, and pimped it up a bit. And now I'm doing a, a, like 60-mile round trip you know, whenever I want to get get into town. So... Um, and it's like an hour each way. It's like an average 27, 28 mile an hour. Um, and so and I'm, I'm warm and dry and I've got you know, lights and turn signals and, and carrying capacity. And um, yeah, it's awesome. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> and people don't, know, people don't know what the hell I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, one of the things that I had on the list that we should talk some about is I see it looks like in some of your frames you've integrated carbon fiber tubing with steel frames. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I did the first one about, about 10 years ago, I think. Um, it was kind of an experiment. Initially, I was thinking I'd do it as like a, a more endurance type of frame and make it more comfortable and then I got got the tube from Envy I was like oh this is a stiff piece of tubing um, <laughs> so, so I built a race bike uh, and honestly from what I've learned through riding and, and building quite a lot of those frames there's not a really good reason to do it mm-hmm. like it doesn't end up doesn't end up any lighter than doing a light steel seat tube and a really light seat post um, but a lot of people really like how it looks, um, and there's no no detriment. So, um, yeah, it's been a process. Uh, did some work with with Ruckus to improve the the bonding process mm-hmm. um, of, of prepping the getting the gap right and getting the prepping the materials and everything. Um, but yeah, it makes for a nice looking frame and. <laughs> Nothing quite says custom like a, an integrated seat mask as, as you've only got a few millimeters of height adjustment. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's your bike. The, so, you know, when you go to fillet braze a tube junction, typically there's some distortion. The round tube is not exactly round anymore. And so it really helps to have good heat control and good miter fit up and maybe to have chunkier, heavier wall thickness tubes. And you have, I'm sure, a lot more experience with all of that than I do, just the volume and the amount of time you've been spending on this. Does that end up being any sort of an issue for you when you go to put this uh, tube that hasn't been heated at all, that presumably is round, the carbon tube, and then to insert mm-hmm. it into the joint that you've already done? Do you have to like ream that back into a round shape, or how do you go about that? Yeah, I've definitely improved that process a lot over the, the time of doing it. So I use a um, a thicker walled steel dummy tube while I'm brazing. Um, and now I now do those joints with silver, so there's a lot less heat distortion. I see, yeah. Um, yeah, and then, then it doesn't only takes. And through the work I've done on with Ruckus on figuring out the best way to get the adhesive in there where having a slightly larger gap. So I've got more tolerance to play with now also. Mm-hmm. 
but still want it to be as round as possible to keep an even even uh, bond of adhesive in that in that space. Uh, but yeah, the uh, dummy axles, oh sorry, a dummy tube. <coughs> so I do that. I put, I think of them as keepers. I do that in a lot of the head tubes as well. Is have the 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 thick wood piece of steel pressed inside, so I don't get too much distortion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've had some in the early days. Had some head tubes go very oval. It's like no, that's not gonna <laughs> that's not gonna not really gonna work. Um, when you say yeah. the dummy tube, is that like specifically the intention is to do something different than like a like like a bronze heat sink or something, or is it effectively serving the same purpose? Well, for brazing, I don't want a heat sink. I don't want the heat to be drawn away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has that difference from welding. So it's it's more just um, just something that's thicker, so it won't distort. So it just maintain the roundness um, and not normally use you know 058 or 065 wall or, or something. So it's it's thick enough, but it won't suck up all the heat (laughs) uh so yeah yeah do you have any now that you have some well now (laughs) since you have experience with that have you ever felt interested in doing more than just a little bit of carbon integration into a steel frame like that's something that i would like to learn more about generally is you know just carbon fiber builders is that a material that interests you much for building bikes or has it ever interested you to, to build frames or forks or stems or racks or any of that out of straight up carbon fiber? It's not a material I'm particularly keen to work with because it's so nasty to work with. Um, and it's bad enough just, just cutting and sanding a steerer tube, the, the dust, um, that stuff's not pleasant. Um, I really enjoyed you know, doing the human power vehicle stuff, like learning how to how to lay up carbon and do the vacuum bagging and cooking it and and all the rest of it was a great learning experience to understand that material and process. Um, but because of the, the toxic nature of it, I'm yeah, I'm not terribly interested in having to work and like suit up better. <laughs> Yeah, to handle the materials, um, and steel is just like a really awesome material for bicycles. Um, I, you know, when people ask me why steel. It's like, well, if you actually just look at the material properties, it's basically got the highest modulus of anything we use for bicycles. You know, some of the real high modulus carbons approach it, but that's not actually the CFRP, that's just the carbon and you're not using that in isolation. Um, and so steel's got these great stiffness and strength properties. And sure, its density is against it a little bit, but with the modern alloys, having the strengths we can draw them down so thin. Um, and it's so flexible on what you can do with with building and shaping. And um, yeah, I just really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, uh, really fair approach. Have you done much or anything with titanium? I know you're less of a TIG welder. You don't have one in your shop. Have you played at all with titanium or does that material interest you? 
Uh, a little bit, yes. Yeah. So I've used it on so on all the tandems I've built, and this is this is a, a direct copy from what Bike Friday was doing. Um, that the my tandem frames come apart, and the mid tubes that bolt into place are, are titanium, um, and they could equally be steel or or stainless or aluminium or carbon for that matter, but. Um, Titanium works pretty well in that application because you can use a, a thicker wall, which you know, handles being clamped better. Um, and then you can really tune. What I learned about all the tandem riding I'm doing, initially thinking about tandems, like, oh, you want it to be really stiff because you've got all this power and torque going through it. And you ride a really, really stiff tandem and both riders get beaten up. And... The reason for that is on a regular bike, the bike can move underneath you. Like it's, it's, it's continually adjusting to what your body's doing on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you've got two of you, the bike can't do that unless you happen to that both be moving in exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, and so riders get, get sore, they get saddle sore, they get uncomfortable. Whereas if you can tune a little bit of, torsionality into that tandem frame between the captain and the stoker then all the comfort comes back suddenly the bike can move independently underneath each rider yeah. and um so i built I built a tandem for a couple in new zealand and they came off of a cannondale tandem where the stoker just hated it, it was continually just they tried suspension seat posts they tried all kinds of things and she just she was never comfortable mm-hmm. um and then i built on the bike and the uh, the captain was also an engineer and he was you know concerned about getting the stiffness right and I was like well this is the beauty of this design is we'll build it with these tubes and if you don't like it we you know, we can swap them out and either go to a thicker wall titanium or go to stainless so you can tune the ride what you like that if it happens what yeah. I suggested was perfect and they're on these awful chip sealed roads in New Zealand and the Stoker's super happy um, so. So yeah, so that's a long answer to your question that I've used titanium in, in some applications where it's where I'm not needing to weld it. Um, I love that example, by the way. That's super interesting to me. Uh, and it makes total sense to me also. I, I've spent very little time on a tandem. But yeah, it's like the, the mass of the other rider, um, you know, like when you hit bumps and stuff, that's kind of, that's going to kind of jostle you around. If you think of a bicycle and a rider, typically the bicycle weighs, let's say 20 pounds and the rider is, let's say 150 pounds or something. When you're, when you're hitting bumps and, and cornering and all these other things, most of the mass is the single rider. And so the bicycle, it's not, you know, like it's, um, what inertia or something. It's, it's not like exerting that much of a force on you. It's like, you're feeling the road through the frame, but when you have another rider or I have experienced this for sure with like a heavily loaded sort of cargo bike, I I had Mm -hmm. a, I had a rear rack with like a milk crate on this bike tour that I did in 2009. And I had all of this really high weight. It was like a high center of gravity and I had a lot of weight in there and I just felt it the way that like, you know, low speed, when you first start riding, you feel it kind of throwing you around and certain kind of bumps, you feel this mass through the frame is kind of throwing you around a little bit, which is an unusual feeling because <laughs> generally the bicycle is not that heavy. And so it doesn't, you know, relative to your body, 
it doesn't do that much to you. And I can absolutely understand what you're saying that like through a tandem, you would, you'd maybe want to isolate yourself a little bit from the rest of that mass by having some members that can flex. And then to be able to interchange some of these tubes to like tune for ride characteristic, that's incredible. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Um, my, uh, my wife has some, um, we had an upright tandem and she had some issues with her neck and her wrist that just, she couldn't be comfortable for very long. Um, so I built us a recumbent tandem, um, with the same, the same concept. And it, it, it's less important on the recumbent cause you're not, you're actually more constrained in the seat, but, um, but in in that instance, I built that bike and um, we test rode it before I painted it and stuff. And I ended up actually cutting one of the tubes out and putting a next size up in because um, I wanted that bit more bit more stiffness for control. Um, mm. But but yeah, it's kind of a a cool way to. I don't know which of the the brothers at Bike Friday dreamt it up, but it's a cool way to do a tandem because you also then don't need an eccentric for tensioning the timing oh, chain yeah. because you can you can just extend the tube in the um, you just loosen the socket bolts, push down on the saddle, and it tensions the chain, and you do the bolts back up. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's um, brilliant. And it comes apart for travel. Wow. Um, so um, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only other time I've done titanium that was welded was I did some titanium seat posts, custom aero seat posts, and I had uh, Todd Gardner um, weld those up for me. Um, another local builder. Um, but yeah, one of these days I'll get get a TIG welder in the shop because it's useful to have for things like that. Yeah, I'm. I, I've heard a couple builders tell me, or people in general, not you know just cyclists, but also specifically builders. I've heard some people say, "Yeah, you know, I don't really care for titanium. You know, I've I've ridden it some, or I've, maybe they've said they've built it, or this is something I've heard from a bunch of people, not any one person, but you know that they, you know, obviously titanium is like it sounds really exciting because like you know it's like a uh, sort of aerospace alloy and it's difficult to use and it's uh, difficult to fabricate with it's corrosion resistant it's very shiny it's got a you know it's a lighter weight and all these things so uh, that's pretty exciting and yet um, it has different characteristics than these other materials so it's maybe better suited to this or less well suited to this and it may be subjective and so i don't really have hardly any experiences riding titanium frames and when i have they were not apples to apples comparisons based off of the bike that i was used to riding you know with all the same tube diameters and everything else so of course it's like really hard to draw any sort of scientific conclusions about that and i don't know if you can speak to that very much but i i would love to have that experience of being able to you know really get more of an apples to apples comparison that's really hard though, right? Cause we come back to that subjectivity thing of yeah. you're with, with, it's very hard to come in unbiased. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so hard, it's so hard to do a true blind test. Uh, my, my feeling about 
materials is the, the design matters so much more than the material. Um, yeah. And of course, the design has to take the material characteristics into account. Um, people, it, it, people say when people say, "Oh, carbon rides this way," or "steel rides this way," it's like, no, it doesn't. Like <laughs> that bike rides that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, any of these materials could be designed to have for the frame to have any characteristics you want um, yeah. using that material correctly um so yeah i think it's again it's one of these myths it's like you know it's like it used to be like oh aluminum frame that's going to be stiff it's like why it's got a third the stiffness of steel um you know it's, uh, it's um the understanding of what's really going on yeah no it's it um, i think you put it pretty well though it's that like any of these can have a, a multitude of sort of outcomes and you know you just what what is important is designing it appropriately and as the designer understanding what it is i think uh, to paraphrase what you said but yeah i think i think you put that really well that it's like there is especially because I, one of the biggest things right is like let's say for instance steel and titanium well typically steel frames have smaller diameter tubes and thinner walls and aluminum frames typically have larger diameter tubes and i think thicker walls too i, I haven't studied aluminum frame right. building all that much but those are two totally different types of bikes so to say that one of them just is this way and the other one is that way is really a pretty silly thing to be saying uh, i've heard people make the argument that like for instance aluminum needs to have you know larger diameters and and thicker walls and stuff so that it doesn't fail from uh, like a cyclic fatigue and i don't really know if that's the whole story uh, you know, maybe it would be impossible to build an aluminum frame with the same, you know, tube wall thicknesses and diameters as a steel frame. But, uh, you know, if you're not going to compare apples to apples, then like the whole, I don't know, it just seems a little bit silly to compare, uh, to, to say as yeah. if that these materials have these hard properties that we have no control over. So like select the, the material that you want to get the outcome you want, which seems a little bit silly. seems like what you would want to do is, choose a material that makes sense and, and, you know, tailor it, then do the tailoring to your, to your outcome that you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. Got to understand what you're working with and there's definitely, um, pros, pros and cons to each material. Um, yeah. well, and what you said about steel uh, is that for your shop, it works really well right because it is formable and it is mm -hmm. quite weldable and machinable and uh you know and I, I always recommend for frame builders if you don't have a lot of metalworking experience you need to start with steel you know you, you could theoretically start with other materials but steel is just it's the most user for, it's like the most beginner friendly it's got it's typically pretty forgiving and there's probably more information and courses about it than anything else you don't need to for instance like 6061 aluminum people are like what like aging that and heat treating that and all that stuff um you, mm -hmm. you don't need to it's just not as complicated or welding titanium is very <laughs> very high stakes and complicated <laughs> and so anyway it's but but even when you have a lot of experience like you do it's still just a really steel is a really practical material for uh for a shop like yours and knowing that you can you can produce the desired result with that medium, you know, why would you choose anything else? 
yeah, yeah, and, and so there seems to be uh, people. I'm very grateful that people like what I'm doing and, and want, want, want to work with me. So um, that's cool. I'd I'd almost say from what just go back to what you just said. In some ways, the easiest material to start with is carbon fiber. Hmm. Um, because yeah, you can I, pretty much build a carbon fiber frame on your kitchen table without any tools. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just a bit, it's a lot more messy. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to get an education about carbon fiber building really, because I, I tend not to think about it as often or as, as much, but, uh, it's a, it's a very real part of the, the world that we're in and you can do some remarkable things with it. And uh, I feel pretty ignorant about it most of the time, so uh, I, I need to learn a lot more. Maybe, about it. maybe for your, maybe for your cargo bike, you should do one of those, uh, get one of those bamboo bike kits, and because uh, uh, kind of the same process of tube to tube, to tube construction. Um, yeah, but then there's lot, the problem is that I just I love metalwork so much. It's like hard to, <laughs> it'd be hard to get. A, what would be a really good project for me? Uh, if I wanted to be enthusiastic about it would be to use my CNC machinery and my CAD design skills to, you know, to design molds and to create oh, yeah. carbon fiber parts that way. But that would not be simple and it would certainly be expensive and time intensive. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, most of the expense on making molds is the time. So if you're donating that to the cause, then yeah, that could be really fun. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Lay, lay, laying up into a, a polished aluminium mold is a it's so wonderful when it comes out. It comes out with this perfect, perfect finish. And it's like oh, at least, at least, at least when using Putreg in my experience. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, laying up into steel or um, you know, plastic molds and stuff is. A lot more finishing afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. funny. So um, yeah, there's this whole Formula One um, industry in the UK. Um, it's like this cottage industry. Uh, so when we were trying to buy carbon fiber for the human powered vehicles, um, we were calling around and there's one place has got an autoclave that they rent out, and there's all these little places. So you end up, end up going to this place that's a barn on this farm, and there's a guy sitting outside standing a piece of carbon fiber that's off a Formula One car. Because <laughs> they've just got, you know, inside they've just got their molds, and they've got a table with all the cut table with all the materials. Um, and they sold us a roll of prepreg that was uh, gone past its date, and they couldn't use it, but it was fine for us. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, just kind of trippy. It's just like a super high high tech thing, and it's like, oh yeah, some guys in the barn. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I, I think we should wrap it up here, uh, unless there's anything else that you can think of. Oh, I was going to ask you, uh, machine roundup. You you mentioned you bought a single phase lathe way back. What other machine tools do you have in your shop? Uh, yeah, so the lays, um, and then I've got a, next thing I got after that was a, a small mill that was, um, retired from Bike Friday and I took it and refurbished it. 
Um, and I stuck a DRO on it and used that for all my machining for a while, but it really wasn't up to the task. Like it's on a, it's on a round pillar. And so the, you know, if you start to cut too hard or it would vibrate around the pillar and that's just, it wasn't good. Mm. Um, so then, you know, I wanted a, a Bridgeport style email. Um, and I can appreciate the idea of buying old machinery and cleaning up and getting it working everything. But I kind of wanted the turnkey mm-hmm. new machine. Don't have to think about it. Um, so I got a Taiwanese, uh, email, um, variable speed head and, um, move the DR over to that. Um, and yeah, so, so now I have to do most of the mitering on the big mill and have the, the small mill set dedicated for one operation. Um, and yeah, I got rid of, once I got the mill, I got rid of the drill press cause never use that anymore because yep. <laughs> got a much more precise drill sitting in the corner. Um, and yeah, that's it at the moment. Um, kind of, I think once, once you've got a good lathe and a, a good meal, you, you know, apart from adding NC equipment, it's, you're kind of set. Yeah. Yeah. No, when you have a, uh, yeah, mill and a lathe, you can, you can do pretty much anything you would need to do. Unless you just wanted extra yeah. machines set up for dedicated steps or something like that. That was one cool thing that Bike Friday did um, for production was rather than they just bought a whole bunch of drill presses mm-hmm. and added their own added their own air over oil um, auto feeds on them, and then they dedicated tooling for each one. So rather than having to buy a bunch of mills and you know it's a really effective way to have dedicated tooling so you can just keep everything running um yeah. and it's in uh in, in the land of toyota like the word the word batch is a bad word yeah <laughs> but, but, yeah is, is the goal every time. Um, and it, it's always when I hear people on this podcast and elsewhere talk about batching, like that part of me that's done that training mm-hmm. bristles a little bit. Cause it's like, are you, have you really figured out if that's actually more efficient or you just think it's more efficient? <laughs> yeah. Um, and a lot of it is, if we can think more about quick change tooling, because it's that's all you're really saving is change over time between machines. Yeah. Um, and that that was the whole Toyota thing was in the automotive industry. It used to take 24 hours to change the dies, the stamping dies for the sheet metal, and so they'd have to shut the line down for a day to change the dies. So they'd could only make the same type of car for weeks and weeks because they couldn't afford to shut the line down. Yep. Um, and Toyota are like, well, people don't want the same type of car all the time. They want to be able to make different stuff. And so through the continuous improvement over a period of time, they went from 24 hours to one minute to change the dice. Yeah. Um, so then the production line can build the cars in whatever order they are needed rather than 
uh, you know, the what you're doing should be dictated by what's in demand, not what's what what is deemed more efficient. Yeah. Um, so it's and batching is can be dangerous because you can end up with a pile of stuff that's either wrong and you don't realize it's wrong until you take the first piece into the next stage um, or standards change in the industry and you've got a bunch of stuff you can't use anymore or yeah it's it's just it's and it can feel more efficient to do the same operation over and over but it doesn't yeah. mean it is so yeah. it's just it's just encouraging people to actually run a stopwatch and get some data and say is this more efficient and does that time saving make sense um am i adding value for the customer um, yeah I like, I definitely do appreciate some things about batch production, but I feel like that, that thinking has mostly permeated my brain that I just feel like I, it feels like a dirty word, you know, like I don't we have some processes in our shop where, you know, like I know that if I could manage to, to buy tooling or make a system that would eliminate or minimize the setup, then it would become practical to run smaller batches. But you know, maybe the cost of that tooling or the amount of time that it would take is not practical right now or ever. So like, you know, we're going to, it's a necessary evil. We, we do need to, you know, sometimes it does still make sense to run some sort of a batch, you know, more than one piece of something. But, but I, you know, typically mm -hmm. I love that, like, for instance, with our tube bender, I developed a system like already nearly two years ago with the bending dies where I took four operation parts that each had three unique programs and one common program. And there's like 30 versions of this die and everything about it is really complicated from a machining perspective. So you need to, you really needed to produce a bunch of them and they're one of the more expensive parts that I make. And it's just kind of a nightmare. And then I changed, I flipped the whole way that I made them and I developed a system. So now, you know, when I realize that I'm, I'm low on this particular one, I just run two pieces and, there's like hardly any setup at all and it's pretty painless. And I would like to do that to everything that I do. One thing that I oh, think is, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm really proud of that one. You know, that, that was, yeah, it required a good solution. I mean, now it's so easy to make those, but um, it required a good solution. And so I put in the effort and then there's other things where it's like, I can sort of afford to have this kind of loss. And so it's, you know, it's, it's like a, you have lower hanging fruit and higher hanging fruit. There's other things that I can't afford mm -hmm. to always optimize, but there's, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, we, we set up the fiber laser to laser engrave these different parts of the tube bender. And it was a pretty big batch that we had run, which is already batch work. Right. But then I see how not only was it more to run through the CNC machine at once, but then when we got it back from anodized, now we had to run it through the laser. And I mean, it, it took like more than a whole day to get, all the programs made for this and the fixturing set up and then to do all four versions of the part and to run all of them through. And each one of them had like a minute or something cycle time. And it was just, you know, I can't stand to like, think that this, this one step that it adds some value, but like not a monumental amount. And that this is like taking like, you know, over a whole day, it's, you know, it's kind of tough to look at that. So then I start thinking like, well, what would it take? that we could, we could efficiently set these up and do them as we go, because that's like a whole day or more, not to mention like a couple days worth of machining time. It's like you, you put in an invested all this time and uh, we only really need a couple this month, but you know, now we're set for like yeah. six months or something. And so you've invested a lot of yeah. time and money and energy into something that 
could have really kind of helped you right now, but instead it's, it's only maybe going to pay off later, assuming that, you know, everything goes to plan, which usually it does, but, uh, it's anyway. Yeah. I, I love minimizing that. And I think one thing is that like, when you start to think about like, how, how would I do this in a smaller batch or in no batch? Well, yes, I would need like an efficient setup, but it's like, you, you kind of want that anyway. Like, uh, right. I don't know no matter what your batch size is, it's like nobody, nobody wants to be setting up machines and tearing things down or like, for instance, one thing that I kind of, I, I have a bone to pick with this. I don't know if that's the right phrasing, but uh, some people, you know, those of us who have a small shop and we like to do shop work, you might think that you want to put everything on wheels so that you can move it around and you can like rearrange the shop to be multi-purpose. And I understand the idea there and I see the utility of it, but I kind of hate it because having been in small shops for so long, I feel like that it sucks when like in order to do any next operation, you have to like quit what you're doing and put it all away and then begin the next operation and like pull things out. And it's uh, I kind of hate like having things on wheels. It's like everything kind of shakes and jiggles around and it's like, it makes sense when it makes sense. But I feel like you need to think carefully about that because if you have to like put every single thing away and completely finish one step before you can start the next one, that doesn't always flow with like the way that real life happens. And so it's like, yeah. you need, you need to develop systems that actually support you the way that you need to be supported. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The only thing on wheels I have is, is my frame jig. Um, Cause once the frame's out of the jig, I can roll it out the way and, uh, have have more room, um, but uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. It was nice setting up the shop from scratch because before it had just kind of grown organically, um, and it took a few days of sitting down. I drew you know drew off a CAD sketch of the of the new space and started thinking about where stuff should be um, to figure out the workflow best, and and then I could make sure I had all the wiring in the right places when I wired the place. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was really satisfying to to set up from scratch and like put that time into planning it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm really impressed, Joe. That's great that you're like um, have that mindset of uh, yeah, just build build what you need because um, it's it gets really expensive to sit on a whole bunch of inventory and then then you want to make a a running change you're like well yeah people aren't going to see that for till next year because i've got to get rid of the stuff first. <laughs> yeah yeah i i try to make stuff easy to set up and document it and all these things because in the frame building world you hear a little bit less about you know toyota production system stuff but uh i still have yet to actually get any textbooks and read them but there's a lot of that thinking uh, presented in my world of like machining and running a machining business. It's a very popular sort of thing for people to talk about and Kaizen and lean and all this stuff. And, um, so I'm like definitely exposed to that. And I think about that a lot and, uh, and you know, like, uh, well, okay. So like personally, I have eaten a vegan diet for like 15 years or something and uh, vegans get this sort of, (laughs) they get, uh, People love to think of vegans as, as like being these obnoxious evangelists who just have to tell you every five seconds, like, you know, how will you know if they're vegan? Oh, don't worry. They'll let you know. Right. Like it's this <laughs> joke always that they're, they're so annoying and they have to always tell you. And I feel like 
if there's any truth to that, I feel like the, the, the analog of that in machining or in the manufacturing world is like lean manufacturing evangelists. It's like the same thing where it's like, <laughs> you might have some good points. You might be right about some things like we should consider this, but like, God damn, it's annoying when somebody like somebody like, you know, they start mouthing off to you about how like you need to change this or do this differently. And it's like, I don't want to hear it, man. <laughs> and so I know, anyway, I, I, I... I can fall into that. I think like I see, you see videos of factories and stuff. I'm like, they're building into a pile. Stop it. Uh, yeah. I, I love thinking about how to minimize waste. And I, I've mentioned this maybe on this podcast, I've mentioned it once or twice somewhere, but I have, it's basically the idea is lean manufacturing as I understand it, but I call it the boomerang method. And the boomerang method is you imagine at my machine shop, Cobra Frame Building, it's like a nice sunny day and we have like the door open on the shop, the big roll-up door. And uh, the material supplier truck rolls up in their truck and they doot-doot, they doot the horn and the guy picks up a 12-foot bar of aluminum and he boomerangs it into the shop and it, it boomerangs through the shop and it just kind of, it comes back out the door five seconds later and it's a bunch of brown paper boxes that are all finished <laughs> machined. Everything is done. The, the, everything's paid for and like the shipping labels on. And now the UPS guy is there, uh, John, and he's catching him and he's like, thanks guys. And then he rolls away. And that's, that's my idea. It's like, that's like a, a total fairy tale, but like, imagine that everything was so, so polished yeah. and there was so much flow that like, you know, you just imagine like, okay, we need to get these parts set up and running on the machine today. Well, like what if every step along the way, all the information was right at your fingertips and you had quick change tooling and everything about it was just frictionless and simple. And, you know, you had a sales cycle that was mostly automated. You know, you had really good information on your website and you had YouTube videos and you had a FAQ and they could just put in their credit card information on the website and pay. And like at any point in the process where it breaks down and, the boomerang isn't working, then you realize like, these are your issues. And then you turn your attention and you try and, you know, like that's the small and small continuous improvements thing. But like, I yeah. love the idea of like, <laughs> it's kind of comical, but like, yeah, it's just, they just kind of, they throw the bar in and they pick it up. And like, I didn't, I wasn't even there that day. It was just all, it was, it built a system that just kind of did it for you. So like, that's kind of my ideal. And then I, it's actually pretty chaotic as I like slowly try to work toward that. Ah. I love that image. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's um, <laughs> that was yeah, that was what I was trying to do, and it's the Toyota talk about it as the you lower the water so you can see the rocks, which are the problems. I see. And like having like having lots of working progress and and having piles of stuff hides all the problems. Um, yeah. And so that's hmm. something I did at Bike Friday was I took. I think there used to be almost 30 bikes work in progress in the line. Um, and I took it down to 10, which meant that you could see if any, if any one cycle was running slow or fast because they, the fast people would have nothing to do because they couldn't just pull from the pile. Yeah. Um, so, so then you can re rebalance the line again. And also that meant also got it to that the line was emptied every day. So, the bike that got started on Monday would be the first bike delivered on Tuesday. Yeah. So it's cl close to the boomerang and the stuff coming out and going out. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a fun game. 
when you when, yeah. when you turn it into a when you get get really engaged in how can I make this incrementally better today? It's, I think uh, it's pretty cool. The, one of the differences too, like when I talked to Aaron Stinner recently, he said, you know, he had built his waiting list way out. You know, it was like two years or something. And when he was able to speed up and make that process more efficient, then he was shortening that timeline, which reduces the weight for customers. And it also sort of increased his like monthly, you know, revenue figure. Okay. So that's an interesting problem for me. I don't have anybody waiting on anything that I make. Typically when people buy it, they can get it. We can ship it, you know, within a couple days, uh, if not the same day. And I think it's important to try to serve my customers that way for what I do, because it's not really custom. And because I know that that's what I would want if I was the customer. But on the other hand, that means that we need to carry inventory. Inventory is expensive. In the case of our bending dies for our bender, I have like, you know, probably a hundred different bending dies just in stock because yeah, there's like 30 different versions and we need a couple redundant, you know, because by the yeah. one of the things that kills me is like, you know, if you're trying to minimize batches, something like anodizing is just brutal because we have lot minimums for anodizing and we have to like load it all up and make a purchase order. We have to drive it over there. We have to pick it up again. And so like, okay. And like when I go to order material, you could order a quantity of like one piece sawn to length, but it's just not practical. So I get a 12 foot bar of something and then I make, you know, 49 pieces or whatever and I have my automatic bandsaw just cuts the parts, but now you're batching, right? And so like, I try to do practical small batches, but anyway, um, I'm not in the position where if I got to be more efficient then then we would be not sitting on inventory or that it would immediately increase our revenue. But like some people have a business model where, yeah, they have like a wait list, their customers are just waiting. And so if they could get more units out per month, they would transact more business. and. You know, that's a pretty exciting prospect, but that's not really the nature of my business model. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, <laughs> and the thing you say about the bender dies, like that's what's, that's the sticking point for me on buying your bender, which I'd love to do, <laughs> but like to get, to get, to get the most out of it, I need to, it's a big investment to get all the dies I'd want to have. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, One of these days though. Well, most people buy it and they get like, you know, a fair amount of people just get it with one bend setup and maybe they get more later. I, I would, I would wager a guess that probably the average customer has like two or three bend setups and you can do a lot with that, mm -hmm. but certainly, uh, you know, like it's, it's nice to just have a lot of options and it, that does, it ends up costing a lot after a while. I don't think that my bend dies are particularly expensive in the landscape of options, but like, yeah, it ends up costing a whole lot of money if you want to have a lot of them. So yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, I always, I always consider buying any tools a, a sound investment. Like you never go wrong buying a tool. Yeah. So, <laughs> I had a. Yeah, I, we'll get there. I had bought a manual lathe in 2015, and I used it for five or six years, and I sold it. I think for exactly what I paid for it. So it was already about 50 years old, and I made. <laughs> I, I learned so much. I enjoyed the hell out of owning it. It was so nice to have a lathe around and, and I made so many parts that really were useful to me or I made some money on it. Most of the stuff that I made on it didn't, wasn't really for sale stuff. It was like shop use stuff. I did do some work for some different people at different times, but anyway, it, it mm -hmm. was just like, 
you know, what a solid investment. Like, I guess I didn't really appreciate any, maybe I could have flipped it for more money. I sold it to a friend when I sold it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it's just like, you can't go wrong by an old machinery like that. Like if you just really want it for your own needs, it's probably worth buying it. And then, you know, never getting your money back out of it would be okay. But yeah, a lot of these tools that we use, and I'm not claiming that my tube bender has the same kind of, uh, you know, value as a manual lathe, maybe it doesn't, but uh, still, I think generally when you have the need for a tool and you buy it, it solves a very real problem for you. And typically tools don't depreciate that, that radically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned being vegan because I am too. And, um, <laughs> it's kind of, I, I, kind of, I, I, I just enjoy the, the kind of, collecting in my head the collection of, of vegan bike people um, there's quite a few i think uh, yeah i think yeah. uh when, when i had wit from merriweather on the show he mentioned it or something because i was i was eating some leftover chinese food on the show i shouldn't be oh, eating right. and do the podcast i'm like munching on stuff and it's anyway yeah i only mentioned it to yeah. mention the parallel between the uh the, the the reputation that vegans have for being uh don't worry they'll let you know <laughs> <laughs> it was it was funny as a thing things have changed in the last in the last 10 years but when i was bike racing and at that time like how can you be vegan and, and be a bike racer it's like uh yeah actually makes me a better bike racer like <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, it was kind of the, the secret weapon for a while. Um, but, That's funny. Yeah, well, keeps you leaner, makes you faster. Yeah, yeah, lean, lean in the manufacturing department and in the diet. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, there you go. End of right. fun. Love it. Okay, <laughs> final question tonight is: Is Rob English your real name? Do you really have that? Is that because <laughs> you're you're English, right? Where you were? Where were you? Yeah, raised? yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm from England, and yes, that is my name. And when we used to go, when I was a kid, we used to go to France on a holiday and cross the border, and it'd always be like, uh, "No, no, no, your name, no English, no, you, uh, yeah." yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but and it's funny because I, I never because I didn't intend to have a bike company. Um, it was when I built these first couple of frames. Had a buddy who had a. Uh, a vinyl cutter and he's like oh I can make you some decals for your bike and that'd be great and he came back with this English and the little flag and uh, and so I just stuck with it so it wasn't really like a conscious decision to (laughs) name stuff after myself Um, but I enjoy I enjoy the confusion because you always every now and again get someone saying it says English but it's the British flag it's like yep because that's my name and that's my nationality (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, yeah cool man cool well thanks so much for being on the show i think uh your perspective it, like everybody's i guess is unique and i really appreciated it i appreciated the lean manufacturing discussion and some of the engineering discussion i feel like i actually learned things and i got to know you and that's about all that I can hope for on this show. It's awesome when I get to meet new people and, and learn about them and learn about their areas of expertise. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you, Joe. It's, uh, really enjoyed it and um, look forward to actually meeting you in person one of these days. Yeah, one of these trade shows or something. I'll see you for sure and yeah. we'll get to talk more. 
Ser. God. Hej. Tjau, tjau.